All right, what's up, y'all? Welcome to the Reflections of a DJ podcast, aka the Road Podcast. Um, we got me, DJ Crooked. We got Jamie the Great. Yo, yo. DJ Never. Yo, what's up? And we got uh, DJ D Miles. Yes, sir. Um, we got a special guest, very special guest. Um, one of the big homies from Vegas, Philly, um, founder of the Source Magazine, um, instrumental in a lot of these hip hop DJs and amazing club DJs in Las Vegas. Um, we got my man uh, on top of a bunch of other things that he did. Um, we got my man Shecky, Shecky Green in the building, Mr. John Schechter. Yes, 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 what's up? What's up, people? What's up, people? Hey, Ple- pleasure to be here. Pleasure, yo, to be it's here. a big pleasure for you to be here, man. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, man. No, seriously, my pleasure. <laughs> so, um, we got we got our youngest our youngest member here, Jamie the Great. Who you know? To be honest, knew heard about you, but didn't really know much about you. You know no, what I not mean? Not at all. I seen you before, but I didn't know who you were. Yeah. So we had to kind of explain to him about you know you founding the source and everything. But I also want to talk about you know Philly because I guess you know Philly's kind of popping right now. Oh yeah. You know? the, the, good just, time. Good time <laughs> to talk about Philly. They, huh? they just won the Super Bowl. Yeah, Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The Eagles is Eagles. in there. You know, Meek Mill. They, like these the the. The Eagles even ran out to uh, Meek Mill, Dreams and Nightmares. Yeah, that was you know? dope. Yeah. That was dope. So, um, I guess why don't we take it back to Philly, man? Because uh, honestly, a lot of your roots back there in Philly also had to do with some of the DJs and the music you came up with. Oh, for sure. And even to the even till you know when you moved to Vegas, you brought a lot of those peoples with you. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was lucky to be born at a time and in an, at an age where hip hop. I, before there was hip hop, so when Rapper's Delight came out, 1979, 1980, I remember hearing that piece of vinyl for the first time. It was actually on a Fisher Price turntable in oh, school. Shit. A kid came in, Alexis Dean, came wow. in with a piece of vinyl. I remember, and he put it on, and it was a little Fisher Price turntable. Ever seen those? Yeah, like yeah. Plastic. used to have one actually. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I was like, "What is?" I, I recognized the beat because yeah. I was already into disco actually, and. Uh, I recognize the good times, you know, chic mm-hmm. drum, you know, bass line. And, How old uh, were you? How old were you? Uh, I was. I would have been like uh, eleven or twelve years old, and from that point, I just was hooked. You know, I remember later that day or later that week, I went into a record store and I said, "Do you have that record where he talks about a bottle of Ko Pectate?" <laughs> and uh, the guy was like, "What are you talking about?" No, I was like, "I was like, he's kind of." talking over uh good times and he's like oh that's uh you know rapper's delight and he gave it to me and uh from that point i was basically hooked on hip-hop um lucky to be in philly when uh which was kind of like the what is it the sixth borough or the fifth borough whatever the the you know the the next borough (laughs) after brooklyn and after new york yeah yeah yeah. because we were the first place that hip-hop came after new york Mm-hmm. And because of that, we were a place that had a lot of avid consumers of hip hop mm-hmm. and a lot of DJs. Um, and it was the first place that rappers would visit when they went on tour, where they were treated like a star. Um, you know, so just being in that environment in the 80s, of course, it, it didn't start right away. It was a slow build. 1980, you know, 1981, we had the Planet Rock and Africa Bambata and all that kind of stuff. And then of course, with the Run DMC era is kind of when rappers as stars and rappers as personalities became more 
prominent. When and, when did like mm-hmm. the club scene like when a hip hop when when a hip hop emerge into the club scene in Philly and then like what DJs were kind of on the come up of that scene and what maybe the first DJs actually spinning hip hop, you know what I mean? Well, the most famous of course are Jazzy Jeff and Cash Money. Mm-hmm. Um, there were other DJs before them. Uh, but those are the most important, I think, to name if we're going to give a broad overview because, you know, both in different ways and kind of in different neighborhoods, much like New York, you know, there were crews and, and MCs are built around the DJ culture and DJs themselves. And, uh, you know, for me, my, you know, passion for hip hop just kind of evolved naturally to the point where I wanted to work at uh, where it was coming from, which for us was Power 99 FM. So that station was kind of the centerpiece of hip hop in in Philadelphia. And Lady B, who was kind of the female radio host of of a hip hop show called Street Beat, had different DJs in and out. So she wasn't the one spinning the record. She was more like the host. host. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that show was incredibly influential for anyone in Philly who loved hip hop between... Mm -hmm. You know, the the early to mid-80s, you know, it so like, into the late 80s. So Lady B was like your high school era, right? Kind yeah, of? pretty much. Yeah, Lady B. So, but for me, I, went, I, I wanted to go beyond. So I actually one day just drove up to the station and like was so into hip hop. I was like, I, I need to work. I need to like get involved. And I ended up becoming an intern when I was in like 11th grade. So yeah, like my high school years. Wow. Um, this was during the era of like UTFO and stuff like that mm-hmm. you know yeah so that was kind of my introduction and i, I became friends with utfo i met all those people oh, I, wow. <laughs> you know um and that was when the philly hip-hop scene started to take shape because prior to that it was very small right as far as just being really fans you know then after you know sort of like you got into like 85 86 with the emergence of Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince, um, um, along with Three Times Dope a little later and stuff like that. That's when it became more about artists and DJs, you know, who in particular. Now, how yeah. big was Fresh Prince and Jazzy yeah. Jeff when they came out? <laughs> like, so, for it was, it was big. Now, I know. See, yeah. like, I remember yeah. Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff, parents just don't understand. Before that. With Even girls, the, girls with no. nothing but yeah. trouble. Girls ain't Correct. nothing but trouble. Correct. Yeah. See, girls of the world ain't nothing but trouble came out, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in 86. Yeah, around there. And... Um, when that record came, this is what people don't understand. First of all, that record, if you don't know, samples I Dream of Jeannie. Yeah. So it's like mm-hmm. a very catchy, very poppy, and almost, you know, happy sounding The video sample. was like perfect mm-hmm. for MTV. No, it there was, was no video nah, for nah, Girls No, nah, that came out. Nah, they didn't have a video. Oh, I'm thinking about Parents Just Don't yeah, Understand. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. true. That, that was their follow-up, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. right? But, but Girls of the World, if you listen to it now, it sounds like a very happy kind of like, you know, fun record, right? But and he tells a funny story. Yeah. And Fresh Prince has all his personality and all that on the record. He's an amazing storyteller. And yeah. Like as with his, with his rapping, right? Yeah. That was his main thing. <laughs> like basically a a Philly version of like Slick Rick, but like a little yeah. bit more fun and you know yeah. whatever. Yeah. But that was the style back in '86 because you had um UTF. Like, who did? Who's the only bugging? Oh, who, Whistle. Whistle. That yeah. Had they sample um. Andy Griffin? Oh, yeah. There was a lot of TV show. That exactly. was the theme. That was, was the big the bad thing boys, back then. The Bad Boys. Um, Inspector, Inspector Gadget. Gadget. Yeah. yeah. Right. So there was, there's a lot of records that were built. So that was kind of the trend at that moment. Yeah. And so the song came out, and it was very popular, very popular in Philly. And the funny thing is, though, this is what people don't really know about Fresh Prince, is that 
when he came out with that kind of style, it was actually big in the real hip hop scene in Philly. I'm, I mean, you listen to it now, that became the crossover sort of breakthrough record. Mm-hmm. Parents Just Don't Understand became the record that the first basically mainstream, one of the first mainstream rap records that yeah. everyone could relate to. Yeah. You know, it was kind yeah. of like a very safe message that white, black, Asian, whatever, everyone could relate to. It was like borderline young MC kind of like busted, <laughs> like a little bit. Because it was, yeah. it crossed over a to that bit. MTV, like yeah. that MTV kid yeah. that was watching. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? But the point I'm trying to make is that that was real hip hop back then. Yeah. And like that, when those records came out, they weren't poppy, cheesy, because there was no such thing. Yeah. We didn't even know pop rap had not been invented yet. There wasn't even the idea that a rapper could be pop. It was just this is all hip hop and it's all great and we love it and whether you're in the hood or whether you're in like you know uh whatever circle you're in you would find people loving that record you know and anyway but you know what my first taste of philly rap schooly d oh yeah psk oh man time. The that best. was oh man that shit I, is legendary that's like maybe the first gangster rap song right yeah yeah, yeah. definitely yeah yeah people consider that the first gangster hip-hop record and the great thing about it, I mean, that record is great for so many reasons, mostly the way it sounds. It's so big. It sounds like it's just like destroying the room. Yeah, those you drums, know? man. Mm-hmm. And the great thing is that he's playing it live. He's not, it's not oh. even sampled. He basically took like a loop, and that's why, it, you know, I said one, two, one, two, three, and it's all like basically manual like he's he's not even looping it he just basically that's why like in the last bar like there's no drums and it just comes back on (laughs) exactly it again it's a little off yeah it's a little bit off but it makes it work somehow because it's so and also the way that record is mixed and the way it sounds is so unique and later on when it got sampled by foxy brown and case or whatever like all these Mm -hmm. other people well biggie redid it right and and Biggie redid, yeah. you know, in Life After mm-hmm. Death, he did, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the, the words got redone, but even the song, when the audio, when the music part gets sampled, you always can recognize it right away because mm-hmm. it has that very distinctive kind of, like, flavor to it. And yeah. it's not, um, there aren't, something about the mix session that day, whatever he did that day in the studio is His legendary. cadence, mm-hmm. too, man. Like, he just sound like he don't give a fuck. Like, <laughs> he's a little offbeat on certain joints, man. Mm-hmm. It's kind of dope. But yeah. is that the guy that, uh, I think Easy E gave a lot of credit to him, like about his style with gangster rap. Probably, I remember. Could have yeah. Been, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. there's there's elements of it in uh, Boys in the Hood mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those heavy drums and shit, yeah. the way it hits. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a more modern version of that shit. But. Yeah. Schooly, yeah, yeah, he was a big influence in all those early gangster rappers, and he went on to become uh, a film score, a film composer. He did the King of New York yeah. and a mm-hmm. few other movies. Um, I didn't. Yeah, I remember that Schooly D song or him rhyming in the, in, the, in, the, in that one night. scene. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. shit was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I remember watching. I was like, God damn, this is so this is so ill. Yeah, that was. Um, mm-hmm. When did N.W.A. come out after that? Eighty nine, eighty nine, eighty eight, eighty eight, yeah, eighty eight. Yeah, eighty eight was N.W.A.'s year. Eighty eight was also, by the way, the best year in the history of hip hop. For those who don't know. I, think I, I, agree, probably I agree, agree with you on that. Man. 88. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. 1988, I think for people our age group who are like who've been around from the beginning of hip hop, that's the year when everything kind of came together. It was just like, I mean, Boogie Down Productions, Eric B and Rakim, Slick Rick, NWA, Public Enemy, Big Daddy Kane, EPMD. Biz Markey. Biz Markey. I mean, the list goes EPMD. on and on. Damn. All those artists came so out long. with like debut albums or their, you know, the biggest albums. Mm-hmm. And it was... Public Enemy, Rakim, uh, 
and uh, Boogie Down Productions were the leaders at that time. Yeah. Back in Philly, when you were growing up in your teen years, was there like teen clubs you would go just to go listen to some hip-hop music? Or you would go to Jazzy Jeff's house parties? <laughs> well, Jazzy Jeff was known for playing high schools. That's how they got started. So the earliest tapes, the first time I ever heard Jazzy Jeff scratch was a cassette tape from a high school performance from Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. And he's doing the thing where he makes it sound like a whistle, like, you know, go real fast. And uh, a lot of the stuff that later, some of the routines they put on record also. Well, was that the first time he did the uh, transforming? Um, that era, yeah, that time frame, yeah, that was, he invented, you know. He invented even, Transformers. Basically, yeah, he's the, right. he was the first one to do, he, he made it sound like in a way you never had heard before. Yeah, right. he basically broke up so much new ground. Um, and then to answer your question, there were the, the, the teens hung out in different places where we could, like high schools or. Mm. Uh, there was There was this thing called Rubber Park, which was downtown where i lived like in center city philly but like downtown part and it was um kind of like a mixed you know kind of gathering of hip-hop people and it was it got a little rough around the edges sometimes but it was you know what you'd expect i mean basically people break dancing graffiti i mean all the things you know that hip-hop was known for we that was where i would go to experience it so during we we're hearing about high school we're hearing about the radio right yeah 11th grade you got started getting into the radio yeah and then how did we move into college with um the source i'm assuming the source started around college right yeah um well i was a good student i got lucky i got to harvard <laughs> yeah i harvard. went to harvard i, have I got another, into harvard i have on another on yeah. a, another side note i have another question about your college years but we'll go into that after i hear about this we hear about the source yeah. okay no yeah. problem um, so long story short, um, once I got to college, I wanted to do hip hop radio because that was my high school senior year. I was just basically all in on power 99 and I wanted to do that. So I found the radio station WHRB, which is the Harvard radio station, which was a classical music format, except for on the weekends. <laughs> On the weekends, they would let you, they would have all these other shows. Right. Mm -hmm. So I found like the one little group of people that were doing R&B at that time. It wasn't really hip hop um, and connected with them. And over the course of like the first year, because it takes a while to kind of get into the system, you have to basically pay your dues. And right. Like, mm -hmm. like you, you know, normal type of thing. And what were they playing? Just an example, just an idea of what we were hearing. Oh, wow. No, like, um, I don't know, like. Alexander O'Neill and stuff like that. I was like thinking that, that yeah. Sur that surface, <laughs> yeah. Surface Happy. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it was a s college station, so it was relatively small audience, at least, well, before we started. But, right. you know, so basically what happened was um, eventually, like, uh, that evolved into a rap radio show called Street Beat, which basically I stole the name from Lady from, B. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that. What happened was, uh, okay, so to, to give you the details, so I, I should introduce that I met my partner in the source, Dave Mays, around mm -hmm. the same time. Um, he was pursuing a job working in the newspaper of Harvard when I was pursuing this working in the radio station. And I said to him, hey, man, like at the radio station, he was selling ads and trying to basically get it because he had a knack for selling ads, it turned out. Okay, mm -hmm. so he was selling ads for the Harvard newspaper, but I said, hey, if you do this for the radio station, you actually, they let you make money. The, the, the newspaper didn't let you keep the money. You had to give it all to the newspaper, but with the radio, you got your little 
10% or 15, whatever it was, you know? And he's like, what? And so then he came over to there and that's the, that essentially was the beginning of the source. So we started this rap radio show called Street Beat. I went back to Philly and stole all of Lady B's audio drops <laughs> from her Power 99. So these very professional sounding, like, yeah, yeah. you're listening to Street Beat, you know, like those kind of things. And stole all that, brought it back up there to give us a little edge on the competition because there was a few other radio shows in the Boston area at that time. Mm -hmm. um, all of us around the same time, now we're talking about the primetime, 87, 88. This was now hip-hop's primetime. And so there were three or four different shows. We were one of them. And eventually Dave um, and myself built up that show into a very popular show and we would get a lot of calls and, and that's the birth of The Source. The Source came out of the desire for us to promote our hip-hop radio show. So you created so like a pamphlet? Creating or like, like a, a, a sort of like a, first like sure. a one page and then mm -hmm. a few pages and it was all designed to, hey, check out our show, showing the industry that we exist so we could get records and we could get interviews and we could get all the things you want for a radio show. So it was like a mm -hmm. newsletter. That yeah. And it was like, at first we, we changed our identity a few times and first mm -hmm. it was like Boston's first and only hip-hop newsletter. And then it was the voice of the rap music industry and then it was hip-hop music culture and politics like it, it basically evolved from a more industry thing for us to just get on the map and then later we started realizing that there's there was nobody in the journalism world addressing hip-hop music the way it should be addressed there was the village voice which mm -hmm. was the best the best one mm -hmm. yeah. there was um, Rolling Stone was just almost 0% hip hop mm -hmm. and uh, Spin maybe like 5% hip hop you know so there weren't many and then they had you well, had, had like Word Up right Rat Masters yes Salt and Pepper and Heavy D up in the limousine and, yeah. you know so right. all the you, you had all those basically very straightforward like picture books you call them like Rat Masters Word Up Right On Right On yeah. Black Beat was another mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. yeah. and basically it was pictures of, of artists you know not even good pictures actually like just like mediocre pictures of yeah. artists mm -hmm. full page bleed like pinup like, it was like literally pinups right yeah, yeah. just about yeah. basically yeah. and mm -hmm. you, and i like that in a lot of those throwback movies that you see now you see like they have them on the wall like they um it's a it's a detail that they put whenever they like i just watched that tupac movie yeah the other mm -hmm. day and uh i saw that they had like the the, the right on uh you know posters <laughs> on the wall and stuff. um so but, wait when, when you're going through this like evolution what was that time span of like all the names changing like six months a year two years i just encapsulated like three years into like one sentence that, that was like a long evolution that was a three three or four year evolution what i described yeah, going yeah. from one thing to another and then realizing that what we really should be is a hip-hop consumer magazine for fans so i want to i want to talk about that so you first started out kite handing out basically almost flyers for your radio show basically yeah. yeah how long did it take for you to be like we want to write more like what was on the first flyer <laughs> like where did it become articles and all of this stuff you, you know? know, at first it was us wanting to put charts. And, you know, we did a few art. The first interview was KRS-One. And KRS was a key figure for, for me personally and for the source in general. Um, and there was, but, but other than that, it was really small write-ups about different cities, about different records. It was, it was, it, it evolved. Um, initially, it was really just about promoting ourselves. I mean, 
you know, as as we got deeper into it, we started covering more territory. That's kind of how it did evolved. you did you put like more information on there to explain what the show was about? Like, what was the in, in, well. Yeah. Well, I mean, initially it was promoting our show, but then as we started getting a wider and wider audience, we started, you know, by like the fifth or sixth issue, we had kind of pivoted to a broader focus, not just about us anymore. It right. was now it was about the music, th- th- just yeah. the music and just becoming like an authority on the music by just covering, writing about it. I mean, a lot of these records, no one was at all was writing about, like literally no one. And you were you were pulling pulling these um these newsletters out like every week every month like well not monthly in the end but in the up to that maybe every six weeks to two months yeah every Mm -hmm. couple months Mm -hmm. we get one out and we would literally we'd have all our names and addresses so what one thing that we do is we take names and addresses from the radio show so we build up a mailing list then we also would mail to all the record stores all the record companies all the other djs anyone in the industry and if you remember back then the only way you know who's in the industry is how. How would you know? Never. The back of the album cover. 100% correct. <laughs> that had the address that, of the record label. The only way we would know <laughs> anything about who's in the industry back then, pre-internet, pre-everything, is the record, the, the 12-inch or LP vinyl mm-hmm. back of the record where you would see not just the name and address of the label that put out that record, but the shout-outs to all the other people and all the other DJs. And that's how... Getting on that was almost like the first ever who's who of hip hop, basically. Like the shout outs on mm-hmm. big albums and getting your name in that. Like, I, I don't remember who when I got in mind the first time, but it's a big deal. It feels like, you know, it's like, wow, and like you've made it. Now mm-hmm. you're on the list along with Chuck Chillout, Red Alert, Molly Mall, mm-hmm. you know, people like that, right. you know. And so, yeah, that was kind of how we got all our information. And then we'd be kind of on the our dorm room floor with like all the newsletters sorting them by zip code like by hand and then putting them in rubber bands and taking them to the post office by hand and that was that lasted for like a few years in that stage yeah how did you guys land on the source like the title the source um krs has a rhyme where he's like you want a fresh rhyme you come to the source and uh that's that's where we ended up wow so by the, by the three years that you were doing it, you created this name for the East Coast pretty much, you would say, for the well, for your newsletter? Well, we were, you know, yeah, you could look at it as, like, the college era of the source was, like, about three years. And then that, once we graduated and we moved the business to New York, that's when it really became the source. But even those colleges, you, you were still able to get a KRS to do an interview? Yeah, well, there was... A famous story where I mean basically I arranged for KRS I was the key person to help KRS come to Harvard to speak at a in front of the Harvard School of Government wow. and all these like high-end people and there was Cornell West was there all these like heavy black intellectuals and professors and wow. all these people and this is it's, it's long story short he was late okay so <laughs> after arranging this and i'm the only key link to, to him yeah there's like a thousand fifteen hundred people in a room with all these people there's a panel set up and there's a, a little sign that says krs and he's not there okay and everyone is like <laughs> freaking out and i'm out on the street like waiting for him and it's 45 minutes it's an hour later this is no cell phones this is nothing no right? cell phones <laughs> and i see off way into the distance i see like a commotion and i just my heart like like lifts up in my chest like that's got to be him like and it's basically krs who's a big tall dude big dude being trailed like the pied piper with like all these kids following him (laughs) he shows up 
he walks in, the crowd goes crazy, and then he like destroyed it. Wow. And uh, that was the beginning of our relationship, basically. Wow. That's yeah. fucking dope. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> That's nuts. So then after the college years, <coughs> right? New York. Mm-hmm. You guys head to New York. And then what was the plan? What well, did you guys what did you guys have <laughs> like offers on the table? That's a big move going to New York, no? Well, you know, we knew it was a hundred percent what we knew we had to do. There was no there was it wasn't I don't remember even discussing it much. It was just like as soon as we're done, we have to move this operation to New York because that was the center of hip hop. Right. And mm-hmm. we knew this guy Bill Stephanie, you know who that yeah. is? He was one of the founders mm-hmm. of Public Enemy. Yeah. And Hank Shockley. Mm-hmm. Um, and we knew those two guys and Bill Stephanie had taken an office in a building on Broadway in Houston, 594 Broadway. And that was um, where we decided to put our first office because we knew Bill, and it was a dope building. It was great location. Was that between on Prince Street? Around there, or? Right between Houston and Prince, yeah. I got a funny story. I submitted a resume for the Source <laughs> magazine back in 92. Oh, man. You, you came to that building, that 594. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that was it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You didn't get a call back? You didn't nothing? Obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> I was still waiting for the call as we speak. Crazy. She That's has, nuts. So then uh, you're in New York. You got these, these, like, these links and connects. And then what was the next stage? You know, that was what I call sort of our... You know, that was when I look back on the whole history, that's my favorite time because we didn't... We knew what we had to do, but we... We never took a course on business or magazines or anything. We just knew kind of by instinct what we had to do. And we did it. I mean, it was, but it was, you know, first it was sloppy, you know, like one room with like six different phones and all that. And then eventually we like kind of figured it all out. But we were all young, like, you know, 21-year-old kids. Um, By that point, we had accumulated like a crew of, you know, about six people or so. And... uh, you know, that was kind of like the golden era. That's my golden era. Yeah. I mean, it's probably like, I remember picking up my first issue of The Source in like The Wiz in New York. Oh, yeah. Nobody beats The Wiz. <laughs> Nobody beats yeah. The Wiz. And I, I think it, it was TLC on the cover. Oh, that was a, that, uh, it's too bad that was your first. That, I that know, would, but it was still, <laughs> it was amazing, yo. You know what I'm saying? Like at that time, it was amazing. I'll tell you a funny story about that cover. That was the first one we ever did with an R&B group, okay? Because yeah. we, were, we were, like, mm-hmm. very... We were on the fence about it, you know, but it was part of sort of a plan to try to get bigger, you know? So, okay, let's try it. So we did it, mm-hmm. and then the cover comes back, and their skin is green. There was, like, a problem. <laughs> like, the printer messed up, and, like, the skin, it just looked... They were all... looked like they were all sick, or, like, it looked terrible. So not only was it the first R&B cover, but they looked terrible. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. <laughs> We have a we have a bet going on because I read this somewhere on the internet, so I assume it's true. Me and Never have a bet going on. <laughs> uh, who was the first person on an issue of uh of the source? Wait, but who would you say it was? I said it was Ice T. No? Uh, no, that's a good answer. Um, oh. no 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 no. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to think about how I can answer this accurately because Ice T was the first cover that we put on the newsstand there you go that's what so i said in some ways that is accurate that was the first real big cover we had was iced tea from new jack city yeah. iced tea in a scene with like a in the middle of like a new jack city shot mm-hmm. you know i think mm-hmm. i remember that shot was he holding a gun i think i can't remember yeah. I, I can't remember he might have been i can't remember 
So was he the first artist? No, on the on the newsstand. No, that's no. what I said so, earlier. So, so no, not the first. The <laughs> I'll first, read my statement. You didn't say newsstand, brother. You yeah, said the first artist said, no, on the Source magazine. I said that's <coughs> I don't even think Jamie knows what a newsstand is. The first newsstand edition of the Source right. featured rap performer Tracy Laura Morrow. Also known as Ice T. I said that. You didn't say Newsstand. You said the first artist on the cover of that yeah. source magazine. No one remember I said Newsstand now? <laughs> no. You didn't say Newsstand. <laughs> was the movie uh, pretty much the reason why you chose Ice T? Was it based I, around that? I think, yeah. I think that that the, the decision there was about we knew this was our first big Newsstand issue, so we wanted to do something that would connect with the widest audience possible. That was what you always do with a cover. Yeah. A cover of any magazine. I mean, you don't really have them. Anyway. You want people to pick it up and be intrigued by the cover. You're trying then, to yeah. put the biggest lure that you got based on what's happening in pop in the culture that time, you know, hip hop culture, pop culture, whatever. Was that maybe one of the first West Coast artists that you've had in, on the cover? Yeah, but not the first. He never is right, is that there actually were Earlier covers. I mean, De La Soul was one of yeah. our first covers. Yeah, um, Karis One. Karis One. Covers. Yeah. Slick Rick was an early cover as well. Mm -hmm. We had um, one cover, which was a very strange one, that had uh, Too Short and NWA together and with like a, a, a very ugly like slanted line in between them, like trying to show like two parts of California kind yeah. of. Uh -huh. um, another thing I should mention is because we were so early, you know, in covering hip hop culture, we were the first people, along with the OMTV raps, that had to contend with the diversity of all these different areas that were coming up like hip, new york new york had always dominated hip-hop right but around the source time is when and yo mtv raps was when houston los angeles miami you know uh other cities started mm -hmm. to um san francisco all mm -hmm. started to kind of come up with hip-hop yeah. and no one in new york wanted to hear that shit you know, people in New York and Philly, which remember is that, yeah. very similar to New York, you mm -hmm. know, taste-wise. taste, taste wise. People in the East Coast where hip-hop was born were like, nah, we don't want to hear that. And I remember with NWA, for example, I was in, in Boston at the time, Cambridge, and I loved NWA. I mean, NWA to this day is one of my favorite groups of all time, not just hip-hop groups, you know. And... Uh, I came down to Philly, my hometown, and I was I walked in the record store, Sounds of Market, you might remember, in Philly, which is similar to like Music Factory in New York, mm -hmm. like one of the key places you got vinyl. And I said, uh, yo, you got that NWA, you know, and he's like, what? That shit sucks. That shit is garbage. <laughs> that shit is garbage. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yo, that no one out here is playing that shit. Nobody. And I'm like, dude, everyone where I'm coming from is, you know, meaning Boston, which yeah. was like a little pocket of like West Coast kind of feeling for some reason. And literally one year later, everyone in Philly's playing it. It took a whole year. This is like what, 89, to, right? Right, 88, 89. 89. I'm talking yeah. about that time for 88, 89. So mm -hmm. it took a whole year for NWA to penetrate that bubble. But when yeah, they damn. did, you know, it was the, the LP straight out of Compton. It was the same thing with New York. Yeah. Same shit, yeah. <coughs> like at 88, nobody was fucking with NWA. But the next year... Everybody was fucking with them. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, straight out of Compton was like, for me, it was crazy. It was like the first time I ever, I ever heard like, like just curses and drug shit and like violence. <laughs> yeah. Motherfucker saying like fuck the police. police. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, I don't know how I was probably like ten, shit, maybe like <laughs> ten or eleven, yeah. and it was just like I was just, and you know, just like 
Walkmans was popping, and yeah. my mm-hmm. mom couldn't didn't even know what I was listening to. But I'm like, you know, like I'm listening to this shit, and I'm like, yo, this is crazy. And yeah. it was, uh, yeah, man. I mean, I, I, as far as what you're talking about with like West Coast artists and all these, I remember when you guys would have like Eight Ball and MGJG and all of these dudes on the covers. I'd be like, man, it's a letdown. Yeah, 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 yeah. From me, like, from me being in New York, I'd be like, yo, like. Yo, what the fuck is this? Like, who are these dudes? And I never really got their music. And it was this big DJ that used to always be in the Source magazine, I think. I remember. I think it was Magic, Ooh. DJ Magic or Magic. Magic Mike? My, Magic yeah. Mike. No. Is that, is not, not, the, not, not the movie. Not, not the movie, but is it Magic Mike or what was it? I'm trying to remember. It was a Miami dude, I think. <coughs> I thought he was from, I thought it was from like Maybe Texas. I'm wrong. Down yeah, south. I could be wrong. But he always had like an ad or something. I know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he was huge though. He would always have like a two-page ad or like an ad, <laughs> or his his mixtape or his album would be there, and it'd be like three, four stars, four mics. I'd be like, how the fuck did this dude get like four mics? And I never wanted to like shell out the money to like buy his tape or his CD. <laughs> I remember when DJ Quick came around. There was another shocker because of the way he looked with his hair yeah, and all that, yeah. mm-hmm. and people would like. You know what the fuck is this shit? They see the ad and they'd be like, "What the fuck is this?" And then it took a long time for that one to catch on on the East Coast too. But that's when we started to realize the point I'm trying to make about that is that hip hop was more diverse than just New York. And our job, even though not all of our audience liked it, such as yourself, uh-huh. was to try to capture the whole thing. No, so, you did a great job. You did of a that. great job. Yeah. yeah, definitely. You know oh, what I mean? You. That's crazy. <clears throat> How did you come about with the unsigned hype column? So Unsigned Hype was a creation of myself and Maddie C, who is a very important person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maddie, Maddie C, that's when you when Biggie says peace to Mateo, that's who he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the earliest members of the Source Mind Squad. That's what we called ourselves, Mind, M-I-N-D Squad. And Matt was just had a knack. Matt went on, of course, to sign, you know, Mob Deep, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Big Pun, um, many other people, to Loud. Um, but at that moment, Matt was the beginning of his career, and he had a knack for just knowing talent. And, like, find, you know, he just had a real skill there. And we would get hundreds or even thousands of tapes a wow. month. Like, so, th- so many. Well, were you guys getting demos before Unsigned Hype? I think so. I think that's why we. I think the reason we started is because we we'd start getting demos and we'd be and like, Matt, "What are we going to do with all this?" And then stuff? Matt was listening to all of them. And well, once we decided, okay, you know what, let's take it on. And then Matt himself started listening to all of them, um, and that's kind of that was the beginning. And we did it a few times, and everyone liked it. And then it kind of the volume increased, more more tapes. And as you guys know, even to this day, it's the same rule. That if you if you listen to demos, like ninety nine percent are Trash. terrible. Trash, yeah. Yeah. So how was like how was like hearing that first Biggie over that rock uh, Big Daddy Kane record? <laughs> okay, so yeah, that is probably the highlight of unsigned hype um, for me, and is probably for the whole thing was was getting that tape. Um, Matt Matt knew Mr. C. Um, Mr. C had recorded, uh, or I guess it was either that fifty grand or it was a. It, those guys together somehow recorded the tape of Biggie, and he's rhyming over. Ain't no high step. Yeah, is that bull? Well, what's the original? It's called like Blind Alley or Blind Alley. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Blind Alley, he was playing Blind Alley back to back. Yeah. And Biggie comes on, and and he's uh, Matt. First of all, says like, "Dude, you got to hear this shit. Like, stop everything. Like, right now." Pops in the tape. I hear Blind Alley, and then he's like, "Biggie is very polite," and he's like. 
I want to say thank you to the source for giving me a chance to perform for you guys. I really respect you. You know, you're like saying stuff like that. And then he starts rhyming. And it was, I don't remember the rhymes, but it was, Matt still has the tape, but no, haven't, I haven't heard it in a long time. Yeah, but he uh, basically is the biggie that we love. You know, he was articulate and funny and sharp and all the things that you that you remember and it so, had so much style. So did you know Big was going to be as huge as he as he is? Oh. N of course not. I mean, you know, but I do remember, you know, I was lucky to be around when, thanks to Matt, and then Biggie became kind of Matt's project. Big, he took him to Puff. Uh, he actually had a meeting with Puff. Um, this was before the issue went out? Or? No, the issue came out. The uh, issue came out. I just kind of want to see, like, what I deal with. Uh, so, like, I, I talk to a lot of young people. I talk with, you know, people in their early 20s. You know what I mean? And they don't, you know, they're very, like, um, they, you know, they, they, want they think everything happens, like, quickly. Yeah. They don't know the process, of process <laughs> and the development of it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I try to ask about, like, you know, you know your college years in the source how long was that that was three years because it, it sounds it can sound like a month or two months right. you know but you know when you get a tape from biggie right yeah for that to make it to the issue how many months was that well that one went right to the top because it was like you know okay we pushed everything to the side like, right. that's this month so i think maybe there was about a month a month passed before three about a month or three to four weeks before we got the tape the issue comes out mm -hmm. first phone call puffy he had just started his new company he had just left uh andre andre Harrell. and he picked up the he yeah. picked right. up the issue he saw that in the source he saw that and he saw like there's just a little picture of, of biggie you might have seen it this guy yeah, yeah. chimo du is an amazing photographer i actually wanted to talk about him too because he, he took that yeah. photo yeah he, he took that photo um and so puffy calls matt because Matt had his name on it. Matt did the write-up, so it, it was signed Matty C. So Puffy calls Matty C and he says, I, I want to talk to you about this guy because I just started my new company. I'm looking for people. And Matt goes up there, has the meeting. Matt, even though there was a picture of him, I, I remember Matt said that Puffy said, so what does he look like? Is he, is he like a good-looking dude? Like, what does he look like? <laughs> and Matt's like, yeah, yeah, like he's, you know, He's, he's got style. He's got style. You know, Matt's trying to like, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, it was, he was just trying to answer. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just these are the things that Puffy was asking, you know. And, and then uh, Puffy hasn't heard anything. He's just read that article. <clears throat> right? No, so you played him the demo. Oh, he he played, did. He played the demo. And then, uh, and then soon after, within about less than a month later, Party and Bullshit is out and that's from who's the man who's the man, who's the man soundtrack yeah. Yeah. right Damn. and that and that was the moment when sort of the fuse was lit because that record came out and obviously immediately we all just everyone in new york went crazy it was like party mm. and bullshit and then dreams, then dreams. i think Army dreams was, was the one that fucking blew yeah. up that was big in new york true true party and bullshit was more underground that's yeah. true mm -hmm. yeah yeah and then of course the next major moment for that would be when i was sitting I remember on a on a stoop outside Washington Square Park, um, and Matt was also an expert at rolling joints. So he rolled like <laughs> a cone, like a, like a European style, like huge cone, and we were lighting it. And he's like, "Check this out!" And he puts in, and I hear Mtume's "Juicy Fruit," you know, which oh. I love the original. Yeah. And it was the first day demo of Juicy, like the next day out of the studio, and I was just like, and then when he says smiles every time my face is up in the source of yeah. course that was very memorable because you're like wow 
but just the whole thing, the whole, the whole, the way it sounded, how it sounded just like amazing. Did like, you, f did you, I mean, I, you know, the, the movie, uh, Notorious. They didn't yeah. put that in the movie. Did you feel, I like, even I still felt like that should have been a part, even yeah. if it was like a minute of the movie, you know what I mean? Well, what's it, you, you know, I appreciate that. And the, the truth is that I know the guy that wrote that movie, this guy, Cheo Coker, and he sent me the script and there was a scene. There was so they, but they never they cut it out. It, it was on the cutting room floor. Oh, yeah. But there is a scene where I'm there and Matt is there, and then Puffy's, you know, the early Puffy meeting and all that. Everything I described, there was actually they filmed it. There was a guy playing me. There was a guy playing Maddie. The whole thing was filmed, and then for some reason never didn't make I it into the movie. Damn. I wonder. Damn. I want to know who he I want to know who played you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. That's crazy. <laughs> so nuts. After that, was there any other like? labels hitting you up for unsigned hype like artists like who is the next one that you can the most famous unsigned hype people would be common yeah mm, came through unsigned hype one. um back then it was called common sense common produced, sense, produced yeah. by no id mm -hmm. um even back then yeah and uh then there was mob deep who mm -hmm. were originally called don't other than i know never knows yeah. but i'm wondering if <laughs> nah. the young boys know nope. Nope. i definitely nope. don't nope. know nope. the young boys know mob deep's original original name nope I'll tell you that off the bat. Go ahead. Poetical <laughs> Prophets. Oh, shit. Poetical <laughs> Prophets. Thank God they changed you know, that. I, did, yes. I didn't even know that shit. Yeah. Poetical wow. Prophets. The original Mob Deep was Poetical Prophets. Even in the un unsigned hype, that's that was put on their, their name put on. I can't think of it right now. But I just, <laughs> he just said it. But yeah. I just remember their first single, Prophets, yeah. That that their first single was like uh what was it back it up or like hit him from the back. Hit him from the back. Yeah. It's 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 it sucks. Actually, yeah. that one um that was the B side. What was the A side? Peer pressure. Oh, Peer that's pressure. right. That's right. You're right. Yeah. Wow. You're right. Yeah. Fuck. Man. But hit him from the back was sort of like the video, I think. Yeah. I think they, they did, did a video for that one. Yeah. I mean, at any rate, Matt, th they came through unsigned hype and like um, Matt shepherded sort of their career, and that's why they ended up signing to Loud, and that's why when you know they blew up on Loud, it was it was kind of following that first album. The second <laughs> album was the one that blew up. Um, but yeah, I mean, just you guys, you know, my mind is now kind of spinning thinking about that era. Other groups I, I want to mention would be Das Effects, uh, Brand Nubian. I mean, of Brand course. Brand Nubian, really? Tribe Called Quest. No, no, no. Not for Unsigned Hype, but just in general. This oh, yeah, era, yeah. That era. I just want to yeah. say these names because before we move on to the next chapter, I just like, these are the, er the source era for me is about Brand Nubian, Das Effects, yeah. Gangstar, of course, you know, um, <laughs> of course, you know, Quest second third album de la um, de la yeah. uh, i read that mm -hmm. you guys had a i guess it was a source tour so it said like cypress hill oh, das effects yeah. was that part of kind of like introducing the world to some of the inside hype talent or was that something completely different yeah that was well th we did a we did a bunch of things like tours and shows and 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 like van tours and stuff like that and that was there was one amazing show the, that i think you're referring to in new york with it was Cypress, Das Effects, and Gangstar, mm -hmm. and that I remember being one of the most insane nights like of, in my hip hop Fuck. life. Wow! For some reason, that it was right when Killer Man was like at its peak. It's my favorite mm -hmm. records ever. Yeah, and and like that record, just like people were like jumping off the ceiling. Like, did people, crazy. in your interpretation, <laughs> did people think that Cypress Hill was from New York? Because even a, growing up on the West Coast, that was the kind of like perception. Yeah, they definitely had a New York sound. I think that's kind of why they were different. Like, Muggs brought that sort mm -hmm. of New York feel. Um, they were a very influential group that era as well, for sure. That whole era was actually my high school. Mm -hmm. So that was my... What years was that? 
That was when I was uh, seventh, eighth grade. Early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I would say like ninety one was brand Nubian, one for all. Yeah. I think um, 90, 91. 90, 91. Actually, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was like now. yeah, seventh, eighth grade for me. De La Soul is dead, like changed my life. Mm-hmm. Like nice. and then and then low in theory just blew me away and it was just like everything after that was like high school. So like yeah. what he's talking about <laughs> was like my high school era. Like when mm-hmm. I was like when I was coming up, so like the source yeah. was a big part of that. It was like when that we would run to the newsstands to get it. Like you know what I'm saying? And it was just like I can't even explain what it was. And one of us would mm-hmm. have it, and they'd, they'd be like five of y'all. Yeah, five of us reading like one one issue. No, it was like so many groups that I never heard of until I read the source, and you talked about them like leaders in a new school. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was like one of the first times I heard about them through the source magazine. That's even crazy. the Stretch and Barbita show, I didn't know about it. Oh, interesting. Put it interesting. In the source magazine. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Main source is another one that um, from that era that were that was the only people that ever one of the few people that ever thanked us for a good review was Main Source. <laughs> <laughs> people were not like the only time we'd hear from people was when they were pissed off. We would never hear from anybody when they were happy except for Main Source. Their mom <laughs> managed them, and he, she brought yeah. me a bottle of scotch. I remember oh, wow, when man. we gave them five. We gave them a five mic on the single, I think. And mm-hmm. at one point, we rated singles, and we stopped rating singles, only rated albums. But when we still rated singles, we gave "Looking Out the Front Door," which, let's face it, is a hip hop classic. Yeah, um, a five mic, and they uh, they appreciated it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> What's been one of the worst responses you've ever had? I mean, I, I've been, you know, we've had a lot of artists that were not happy about some things that were written. Yeah. Um, for me personally, I mean, coming back to KRS, because at one point he put out a record called Human Education Against Lies. You might remember yeah. it was called mm-hmm. the Heal Movement. Yeah. And this was after self-destruction because self-destruction blew up and that was like a, a hit in the mm-hmm. hip-hop world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was like a, a very positive message where all these artists came together and did, did something good. Then he f- tried to follow it up like a year or two later with Heal, which that was, was not keep, a good Let's keep record. it real. It was kind of whack. No, it was terrible. <laughs> it was I don't his, his worst work, right? I mean, even if it he's... I, I mean, I'll tell this to Chris's face. I mean, I'm not... You know, I don't want to insult the man, mm-hmm. but, you know, the truth is it wasn't his best work. Right. And so... Matt, Matt C, again, now he writes a review where he's honest about it, and we published it, and I remember that Chris was absolutely furious at me, at Matt, at the magazine. Um, the relationship is over. The relationship is over. I remember he was screaming that on the phone. Um, and, you know, but that was just one of many, you know. Don't want to dwell on all the bad yeah, bad yeah. things, but you know it was. There was a lot of people. There was a lot of people that were but, angry I mean, about reviews, and sometimes they're angry about things that had nothing to do with us, like a picture where someone's in the background flashing a gang sign, pisses off somebody, and I start yeah. hearing about it. Didn't you guys like piss off Public Enemy at one point? Yes, there was uh, man another incident, <laughs> where, and they actually had a video. Yes, they had yes. somebody playing you in the video, right? Yes, that's very that's oh, such. I love that you know that because that's like the <laughs> smallest little piece of hip hop trivia. Like that video almost never got seen, like maybe once anywhere. But there was a time when Public Enemy. Now, one of my partners in the source was a guy named James Bernard, who was a very, um, you know, kind of edgy sort of intellectual. You know, who, who who took a lot of stances on a lot of issues, and he took took a stance against Public Enemy about something they were doing. Um, you know, 
whether it was creative or something about their message that he didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, by the way, had a tattoo of the Public Enemy logo on his arm. Mm. So he loved Public Enemy. But uh, whatever it was, I don't remember exactly, but something happened around Fear of a Black Planet time mm-hmm. that yeah. he didn't, maybe that he just didn't like that album. And so they ended up getting furious and so angry that they made a whole video where there's a guy playing me. There's a, James was like, we were kind of, partners running the editorial side so i was editor-in-chief he was like editor editorial director whatever you know we were basically together running the whole thing and he he triggered this anger from chuck d and then they ended up making a video and you know it was it was weird it was really weird and no one ever saw it because the song was like uh, no it was actually like a shitty song so the video never got played Mm -hmm. so what song was it do you honestly don't remember i forgot what song it was but that's I forgot crazy. what song, yeah, but I did remember that incident yeah. happening. It's a very small piece of hip-hop <laughs> trivia, yes. So, uh, like, when you when you were the editor there, <coughs> I mean, I have two questions. One, I mean, how crazy was it to finish an issue? Was it always a scramble to the very end? Was it always, like, in, like a total shit show until, like, the last day of, of pressing? And then, two, at what point... Did it ever like? Was it ever smooth, and was it ever just kind of working? And then, were you kind of at what point were you kind of over it? You know. Well, great, all great questions because yeah. no one's ever asked me about that before. Um, that's like the truth is that it was almost always a scramble. The truth is that it was never a well-oiled machine because it was, you know, it was we were pioneering new ground. I'm not making any excuse or anything, but it was it was it wasn't easy to pull together an issue every month there was so many p- moving parts so many writers so many things and we were very basically understaffed the whole time you know what i mean so yes we put out an issue every month but yes every month there was a lot of work down to the last wire of finishing the issue of course we also evolved with technology because the very early days of the source we used the original Apple Macintosh, which you remember that was shaped like this, the rectangle shape. And like we used um, the earliest software to make magazines, which was PageMaker, um, Quark Express and PageMaker. And you would move, if you move one thing, the whole page has to rebuild itself. So it would take like hours to lay out one page, you know, because of that, because of technology. We were fighting with the technology of the time. Then as technology got better, our our system got better right you know um so it was always a scramble but it always felt great to get the issue out you know that was kind of like the monthly cycle like when the issue was was fully out the door we felt great about it um and the biggest things people always wanted to know was who's on the cover and what rating did something get Mm -hmm. like that's it that was the main thing oh then the third thing how much money is somebody making that was always the big question (laughs) we always got that's why we always did those um uh, we did features sometimes with peep rappers in their cars, and that's mm-hmm. kind of why we started doing stuff like that because there was this constant stream of mail like about asking how much money people are making. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you understand, again, this is pre-internet. You know, people are just at reaching out because they were like the only thing that they right. got, you know. I have a question. I'm, I actually know this, but I don't think these guys know about Illmatic. Mm-hmm. You first had the album like six months before it came out, right? And you did the review on it, right? Yeah. Well, okay, what happened was with Illmatic was a great special story. Basically, I knew this guy named Chris Schwartz in Philly. He ran Rough House Records. 
Rough House Records mm-hmm. became famous for the Fugees, yeah. mm-hmm. um, Lauren Hill, and Cypress Hill, mm-hmm. and a few other artists. Criss Cross was on, on Rough House. Yeah. Um, so they had a lot of hits. And they would join with like Tim Dog was Columbia. Yeah. Tim Dog. Tim Dog. Yeah. So they they had a hot streak. They got really hot, and they were they were making hits. And Chris Schwartz had been around the Philly hip hop scene longer than me. He's like older than me. He was a guy that I always wanted to be down with because he was ahead of me in the hip hop world. Another white guy in Philly mm-hmm. ahead of me. So I was so uh, he had built up Rough House, and I went. Source was running, and I went to a meeting in his office in the suburbs of Philly and it was like a really messy desk with like piles of papers and everything and he's like and I said we did the whole interview or I forget what I did whatever business I was there to do and then I said um hey man um so yo I heard you're working with this guy Nas now at that point we had only heard halftime right and uh live at the barbecue no you live at the barbecue halftime and is that it? Oh, yeah, that was it. Back that to was the it. grill. Back to the grill. Back to yeah, the back grill. To the grill. Mm-hmm. And so just from halftime alone, we were going crazy because we, we love this guy Nas. And we, I mean, of course, the the Live of the Barbecue also, those are the records that people were like, who is this guy? Like, he's yeah. incredible. So I I asked Chris Schwartz about Nas, and he's like, oh, you know about him? You've heard of him? And I was like, yeah, hell yeah. We're, like, <clears throat> loving his, his stuff so far. He's like, he looks around this messy desk. He puts up. A blank, like black cassette, like just an unlabeled black cassette. He's like, here, here, check this out. Take this. And I was like, oh, this is Nas? He's like, yeah, yeah, just take it, just take it. So I was like, cool. I put it in my pocket, finish the meeting, get back on the Amtrak train, going back to New York, pop in the tape deck, and it's the entire Illmatic album, like eight months before it came out. Fuck. Okay. He just handed me pretty much the best album in hip hop history, like without even thinking about it. What I was going to do with it. He didn't even say, like, don't tape it for anybody. You know, back then people would dub cassettes. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. I didn't, but, you know, like everyone would, you know. And how was that first listen? Okay. Shit. I mean, <laughs> I was like, I remember almost feeling like an out of body experience, like listening to that album on the way back. And then when I got to One Love, yeah. that was the one that really did it for me when mm-hmm. I heard One Love with that, the xylophone strings and. Q-tip and yeah. you know, and then just the, the vibe of that, and then the lyrics were so deep and so just intense. And like I, I remember, just by the time I got to New York, I, I had knew that this was just groundbreaking classic album. So I rushed down to the source office. It's like nine o'clock at night, and I get there, and a few people are there. Maddie C, this guy Scott Free, was another former Loud executive. Um, Reef, Rob Tulo was there. And we pop in the tape, and then I played it for everybody. And then, so then we all just were blown away. And then we had to sit on it for like eight months. That's hard. Yeah. We had to sit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We had to sit. Hey, yo. (laughs) So that was a difficult, but then the album ended up leaking. It wasn't from us. At least it wasn't from me. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I never dubbed that copy, and I still have it. Really? Yes. And, what? And but it's, the album ended up leaking. So yeah, big time. Big man. time. Everybody, it was on every mixtape that came out how, yeah. at that time that how, had the album. How long before it came out? Like months before the album yeah. came out. Yeah. That's yeah. why it was never like a huge seller. Because yeah, like every, the, all that demand was satisfied. Everybody by knew leaking. the songs on the album already. But before is, it that, came out. is that a typical rollout time? For an album, that sounds a, like a long time to hold it for eight months, no? Nah? It may, it, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, absolutely. I mean, you know, 
probably because they were integrated. I mean, first of all, Nas was a very edgy artist. I mean, he was like right. talking about, I'm pulling automatic guns, guns and, and nuns, nuns mm-hmm. and stuff. So, and <laughs> he, I mean, he might have been one of the first, like, I would say Eminem-esque, like shock lyrical dude that said like, like said about Jesus, you know, I'm snuffing Jesus in the live, live at the barbecue. Like he said a lot of fucked up shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he was like a shock rapper at the time. And I remember like, I mean, now that it makes sense that you guys had it for eight months, because when you guys were like, I remember what you guys really kind of amped that whole album up. So, yeah, that was so there was a review that was written by Miss Info, Minya O. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I did a story where I interviewed Nas and then I interviewed all the, all the producers. Yes, so I remember that. Pete Rock, Q-Tip, Large Professor, um, Premier. Mm-hmm. So think about like. Just Crazy. that right there. That's like the, that's like the golden era right there, basically. Yeah. You know. Um, but so, you know that that story came out, and we called him the second coming, which was obviously a reference to Rakim. You know, but it was kind of more vague. Like he's the second. He's raps Jesus, whatever you want to call it. You know, he's he's the guy that's going to save hip hop, basically. Yeah. And everyone, you know, the album ended up. You know, that one we were right about. We weren't right about everything, but I think that one, I think we ended up being That's right crazy, about. Yeah. I remember, like, being in high school and just, like, hanging with my boys and shit, and we're, like, looking at that article. And we kind of knew about Nas, but we didn't really know that much mm-hmm. to the point where we're reading this. And, like, yo, I'm like, why are all these fucking producers, like... Because this is the first time you saw all of the best producers working on one project. Yeah, yeah, it was one of yeah. the first Because P-Rock mm-hmm. was the CL Smooth, and then P-Rock would do, like, a remix for a single, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then, like, Premiere would only work with, like, Gangstar, Gangstar. group, like, all the homies, right? Mm-hmm. Very rarely did he work outside. And it was just kind of one of those things where you're like, wow, all these motherfuckers, like, batting for this one dude. And then you guys had that huge, like, you know, feature in there, and we were like, damn, this was maybe going to be a big thing. And we didn't realize it till we, like, listened to it. We are like, Yo, this shit is crazy. Yeah. But I was just always wondering in my head, like, you know, like you guys, you guys were sitting on that for eight months, just like yeah, that was holding weird, that in. That and Brand Nubian was a similar story in terms of sitting on it for a long time, and that also leaked. If you remember, Brand yeah. Nubian mm-hmm. was was another one that fired, like lit up the streets well before it was actually released. Yeah. So they never got this, the benefit of the sales they should have gotten Damn. because of that. And also, yeah. the bootleggers are selling their the mixtapes as well yeah bootlegging yeah. back then bootlegging which was like manual copying of cassettes mm-hmm. it was a big problem back then yeah yeah. yeah. I mean two dollars for a whole album you know what I mean and yeah. it sounded Crazy. good good and quality and it sounded good quality I mean do you have any info on why they would wait eight months like why would they push that so long you know the people who would know that is uh, Faith Newman who was the A&R person at Columbia. I was about to say, Columbia didn't really have any hip-hop artists at the time, right? It was, curi- like, it was like Curious George and Nas. Yeah, they were both in the same <laughs> circle. Yeah, and, I mean, the same same like little crew. And uh, also we should mention Search, because Search was actually instrumental right, in yeah. getting mm-hmm. Nas signed. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, the only reason why I know Curious George, you guys might not know who Curious is, is because he lived in my building. Yeah, he told me that. Oh, yeah. did he? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Did you know Seer too back then? Yeah, I used to see him all the time. Like him, Cotty. Uh, Cotty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Killer Cotty. Yeah. All those dudes, they were in my building, man. So, like, I would see them. Like, when Walk Like a Duck came out and then Uptown shit was, like, our anthem, we were like, yo, this is this is the shit. But, like, Where yeah. was that building? It was uh, 97, Columbus and Amsterdam. 
Okay. So he he was on uh, 120, like up there in the Upper West in Manhattan, mm. and then we we'd always be like around the Goat Park, yeah, and stuff like that. But yeah, that's the only reason why we were like Sierra mad proud. Had the big afro back then, right? Yeah, the Sierra huge had the afro. huge afro. Yeah. <laughs> Before he had to cut that <laughs> shit. Yeah. That's fucking dope, yo. That was there crazy. um was there camaraderie amongst publications like i know uh in 93 quincy jones started vibe magazine so did you guys view like maybe vibe as like a rival or like other magazines as rivals or is that something that you guys like openly like work together or maybe like passed talent to each other or how did it work with that stuff okay good question um vibe basically more a rivalry mm-hmm. we, we were not working with anybody else that was it was there was a rivalry between the magazines there was vibe um, and I'll tell you the story behind that is that myself, Dave Mays, James Bernard, and Ed Young, who are the four main founders of The Source, sat in Quincy Jones's house right after that Slick Rick issue came out, the, one, the blue one with Slick Rick on the yep, cover. I remember that. Okay. Right after that came out, I remember that was our newest issue. Um, I think it was 92. We were sitting in Quincy Jones's house with Russell Simmons, Quincy Jones, and about 15 guys in suits from Time Warner. And they were basically going to buy the source. Wow. And obviously that deal never didn't, didn't end up happening. Um, they offered us some small amount of money, and they basically didn't give us a proper treatment in the end. But basically that was why they started Vibe, because they came to the source. They wanted to buy the source. We were there. And then they went off and did their own thing. Vibe came out the gate. And we were very concerned at first because here's Time Warner and Quincy Jones and Russell Simmons teaming up to do a hip-hop magazine. What are we going to do? We're just like a bunch of guys with no real money behind us, no real budget. And um, the craziest, you know, as with all things, it's not quite what you expect, the way Mm -hmm. things turn out, because basically what ended up happening is they put out this very high-end, Tretch was on the first cover, I remember, lots of fashion, lots of products and lots of more mainstream things and that ended up helping us not hurting us because all these advertisers now had hip-hop on their radar people that we would never have reached clothing soft drinks cars and electronics things that we were we were only focused on record labels and then a little bit of clothing and whoever was hip-hop right now Mm Mountain Dew is interested, and you know, um, you know, different car brands and so, things like that. So they opened the market almost for yeah. you guys. So we were like, at first, we were like, "What's going to happen?" And we were, we didn't thought they could outspend us and crush us. Right. But in the end, it ended up boosting us, and it made the source better and increased our advertising by a huge amount. That's, wow. that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. And then, so I, I think this was in the source because my memory is pretty bad. But how was it working with Russell Simmons? Did you ever have to like work with him in the source? Because I remember <laughs> an incident, and it could, and I remember fourteen shots to the dome. Is that the LL Cool J album? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it that you guys did a bad review, or were you guys were gonna do a bad review on that? And it was the album after Mama said knock you out. I I had a I, this is I don't often talk about this, but I had a I had a. The only issue I remember with Russell had to do with a different album, with Pete Nice. Pete mm. Nice's solo album. <laughs> and I love Pete Nice. And from, uh, by from the way, I'm, Pete I'm nice friends from with third him. third base. Yeah. From third base. <laughs> yeah. I'm friends with him. Re, you know, we've recently reconnected. He's a very smart, knowledgeable hip-hop historian, more so than almost anyone I've ever met. His knowledge of 70s and 80s hip-hop is beyond compare. At the time, however, 
his album, I wasn't a big fan of it. And I remember covering it, whether it was an interview or it wasn't a review, it was like a feature story. And I think I was honest about my feelings about the album. And in that article, I mentioned something that Russell had said, where Russell admitted that um, he didn't really like it either. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like Russell admitted to me somewhere, some interview, and I had my tape recorder. He said, nah, I mean, that, that shit ain't that good or you know, something like that, right? And so I printed it. Oh. And it was like the shit hit the fan, you know, and he was he was the one screaming on the phone that day, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. He said it. So I wasn't I wasn't wrong to print it. I mean, I didn't lie. I told the truth. But, mm -hmm. you know, with hip hop, as with all industries, is politics and all that. So I probably could have said it in a more delicate way. So mm -hmm. as not to, like, step on people's toes, you know. Right. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> and it, speaking of Russell, because he's been in the news. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit too much. I mean, what do you, what are your thoughts on all of this? I got by the way, I got more water. Okay. Uh what are your thoughts on all of this like, you know, obviously uh all this sexual assault, all the sexual stuff that's going on and obviously it's a touchy subject, but I think it's very very I mean, if you want to talk about the most misogynistic music genre, I mean, hip hop has got to be up there, right? Next to rock hip -hop maybe. Hip hop and reggae. Reggae, reggae, yeah, reggae, yeah. goddamn, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, nah, I mean, uh, I follow it. You know, I mean, now I know a few of the people that have been accused of things, such as Russell and Brett Ratner. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, the way I feel is if you're guilty of mistreating a woman, you deserve to be um, called out for it, and you probably deserve to be to, to have some, if not punishment, some penalty or something against you for doing that. You know, none of these guys have to have sex with that woman right now we all are attracted to different women as we go through life right. and we don't force ourselves on them you know there's a way to approach a woman whatever age you are and whatever amount of money you have in your pocket and whatever whoever you are in life we don't have to force a woman to touch us or to kiss us or to do anything else so when i hear these stories i mean i generally believe the women um, and I think that uh, anyone who did these kind of things needs to look in the mirror and tell the truth about it. And, you know, I'm not saying they should be thrown under the jail or anything. Right. Unless it was really severe. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that uh, there's n where there's smoke, there's fire, typically. You know, I mean, no one th – there's been a lot of people saying the other side, like, you can't – you know, people are being falsely accused, and maybe that's true on to some extent also. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some people that are being falsely accused. I mean, because, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, some of it came up, but it was, you know, I mean, the biggest one for us would probably be with, like, Tupac, right? That happened around that same time uh, as, like, Mike Tyson and all that was uh, going yeah, on. Yeah, mm -hmm. And then um, I guess I, I bring this up kind of because, uh, you know, the, you, have you seen the Stretch and Bobbito documentary? Of course. It's fantastic. It's great. Yeah. Uh, and then they kind of interviewed, like, I forgot one of the shorties that was in the beginning of the radio show. But she was, like, the only female. I know who you're talking about. Um, uh, I forgot her name. But she was the only female. She's still in the industry now. She's still in it. But she was the only female in that room with a bunch of hip-hop dudes on this radio show. And, you know, it was it was not easy. It was, it was you know, she was getting picked oh, up all the time. Are you, you talking know? about um, Mimi Valdez? 
Then yeah. Going, that's yeah. what it is. You're talking yeah. about Mimi Valdez. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. I know Mimi. Yeah, she became later like the editor of Vibe and stuff like that. Yeah, and I, and I know there was some writers. I don't know, like Dream Hampton, right? Yeah, is a is a big one. But I know mm-hmm. like it wasn't easy for females in the beginning of hip hop to really number one get taken seriously, be respected, or anything like that. So like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just kind of wondering, you know, as you were going through, did you see a lot of that and a lot of mistreatment, or did? Is it, do you think there's more shit that's gonna get like kind of thrown into the press later, later, or like? Or yeah, I mean, you know, there's been a few stories like that lately. Um, and you asked earlier about like the music itself. I mean, when I listen to, we mentioned NWA, and one of the things that's weird about NWA is that they have incredibly misogynistic music, like yeah, beyond yeah. the top, like <laughs> almost like a cartoon <laughs> level of misogyny. Yeah. Like there's one song called "One Less Bitch." You know that yeah. song? And Dre is describing murdering women and like throwing their bodies away because they did something wrong, you know, whatever. So it's like there's crazy messages. And back then, the, my, I, this is basically a fault in myself, I feel, uh-huh. is that I, I ignored it. You know, all of us guys back then ignored that message. You know, they were like, oh, yeah, that's just they're just talking shit but i mean they're just you know they're just like talking shit or whatever but in the end that did hurt people because that like you know somewhere down the line somebody probably did something bad to a girl because you heard them saying that on that song you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i mean there was a certain level of like humor to it all right like we didn't take it seriously so that we just kind of laughed at it and the more over the top it was the more like dirty and like like the ghetto boys for example uh, yeah. the ghetto boys were totally cartoonish violence you know like <laughs> right i mean okay. and, but i like the ghetto boys but oh, i'm yeah. just saying like you know especially like scarface i think scarface Amazing. is awesome but uh yeah i mean yeah I, I hear what you're saying there's there's definitely some problems with hip-hop when it comes to misogyny mm-hmm. um and i think this happened this movement happening now is it's good i mean i don't think i don't have any patience for that anymore like when i hear anyone doing that stuff i just literally turn it off like I have no no desire to hear those messages, but I also understand what an eighteen or twenty one year old kid thinks about. You know, you're not thinking about that. You yeah, just yeah. love what's yeah. hot right now. And mm-hmm. if this edgy yeah. stuff is hot right now, then you're there. And then things were different back then, like eighties, nineties. It's than it is right now. It is. It's funny though. Like, but I see the new. Like, I look at the new music now, right? And I'm like, God, these dudes are such idiots. Like they're so they they they're throwing guns around. They're just acting stupid. They're treating chicks like shit. And then I'm just thinking, like, wait. I mean, I kind of grew up on the same thing in a different form. Yeah. But it's basically the same shit. I mean, I grew up to. I mean, I was listening to Two Live Crew too, and I was listening to like, yeah. you know, Pimpin' Ain't Easy, Big Daddy Kane, I mean, Slick Rick, Treat Her Like a Prostitute. Yeah. I mean, like. that shit is crazy. I mean, <laughs> yeah. honestly, like. And I'm thinking like, wow, I mean, I'm just showing my age and my maturity at this point, right? But I mean, I guess, I don't know, call me crazy. I want to say it's worse now, but, I'm, you know, there's a part of me that like, is it really worse? Because it was pretty bad back then. The only thing I think is worse is that hip hop has a a, a, a a loud, a much louder voice. Much so that louder. like yeah the the stuff that we were listening to was really centralized to like maybe like you know half a million people half a million yeah. maybe a million now it's yeah. like you know fucking and there was a, a level of humor to it too there was a level of humor like even like i ain't the one on nwa's album oh yeah i yeah. used to like walk around the house singing that with my mom <laughs> <laughs> like we would be laughing like bitch i ain't the one like I my mom was like really big into hip-hop i don't know how, reason, i don't know what household you grew up in man <laughs> <laughs> hey man <laughs> Inglewood, California. <laughs> but Because I ain't the 
one. Yeah, like my mom would love would blast that song in the house, and I just to this day like it's it's ve- it's very strong in my memory about that song what Ice Cube was saying, but he said it in such a humorous way that it made light of it. Yeah, I mean, do you listen to any hip hop? Like what? Like you know, what do you bit. think of it? What do you look? How do you look at it now? Is there anybody you would put in the unsigned <coughs> hype column? <now? laughs> I mean, you know, I guess I, how do I look at hip hop now? I mean, I've stopped feeling like I'm the target audience so I, I I no longer feel like I'm the one that they're doing that's supposed to understand it in other words like I'm okay with that you know like there's a lot of different styles now and it's what I really feel is like there's very few artists that are actually rapping in the way that I consider quality hip-hop to be like mm-hmm. you know that would be guys like Joey Badass or something like that or a guy that's quality they're, they're saying something um you know, very few of the artists. But then again, you have guys like, like let's say Drake, for example. Like Drake, you know, it's easy to like make fun of him, but he's making a lot of great songs, lots he of is. hits, you know. And I, I actually don't mind Drake. I like Drake. Um, but all the quote-unquote mumble rap, you know, most of it, uh, you know, goes past me. I don't really, really care about one versus the other. I mean, once in a while you hear a beat and people like it and you hear it a lot and maybe I might like it a little bit, right. you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. yeah. in general, all that stuff from like the Migos generation, just I, I don't pay attention. <laughs> the Migos what, what would you yeah. say is like uh, one of your favorite albums of last year? Like uh, Jay-Z Hip-hop 444? Or, yeah. Uh, what, let me see, what else? Would I'm curious. To, Kendrick Lamar. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. curious to know how you feel about Kendrick Lamar's. Yeah, Kendrick, I should mention, is another quality MC who's uh-huh. obviously saying... Like, I like when rappers say something, you know, like, not just rhyme well. Jay-Z, of course. J. Cole. Um, yeah, J. Cole is a good one. I'm trying to think who else is put out albums last year. Um, if you have any... Oh, I love that Tribe Called Quest album, of course. Yeah, that was... An, that yeah. was. Did you feel like they should have had the Grammy Yeah, nomination? that got... You know, it's... That got very little... I mean, that was big in hip-hop. Right around the time Trump got elected, remember, that came out? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, that was, like, my, like release valve for like when trump got elected i was like man let's all rally around this tribe called quest album but then i realized that not that many people were really rallying or that into it like Mm -hmm. it was a limited kind of impact and i spoke to some very influential friends in the music industry and they didn't even like it and i was like what like you don't even like it and they're like no they loved um what's his name um uh, what's that guy from Philly? I, I'm blanking on his name. Big was, Mel? No, no, no. The other um, one. Um, Lil Uzi? Yeah, Lil Uzi Vert. They were like, no, this is what's happening. Wow. It was Lil wow. Uzi Vert. They're like, mm-hmm. not Trap Call Quest. Lil oh, Uzi Vert. And I was like, damn. and I listened to it, and I'm like, okay, I mean, look, he ended up being right. That Lil Uzi Vert was like a phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but I would never have called that. I would never have picked that. You know? uh, tribe? Nope. What did you think of the 444 album? I thought it was pretty pretty clever. I thought there was a lot of really good rhymes on it. I love that video they did. Right. Um, which one? Yeah, they did a video for a lot. The OJ? They did a video for the whole album. Just yeah. Oh, that's right. Story of OJ, was it? Yeah, that one. That was right? that yeah. one. Yeah. 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 I thought the story of OJ was the closest thing to like real hip-hop that I've heard and seen in a minute with that kind of video where it reminded me of like something from the 90s from like a Native Tongue or like an X-Clan yeah. where it was very much informative and it made you almost like kind of change your perception yeah. on what on how you're living your life and what's really going on yeah and i thought it was uh i don't know I, I thought it was one of those things that took me back and it was the closest thing i could think of to like uh what do you what would you call that uh fucking uh not i don't know 
fucking revolutionary rap or what the fuck yeah. were they calling that shit? Yeah, that's a good. Then. That's a good one. Yeah, like Ed's Clan. Uh, yeah, J- Jungle yeah, Brothers, a no, whole Native Tongue Alpha movement Citric, kind of. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, uh, we're gonna talk about DJs. Yeah, well, well, I want to move yeah. there. We're yeah, passing okay. the nineties right now, so okay. we're in the two thousand. Okay, go ahead. Let's go to two thousand. What, what year did you get here? Well, to yeah, Vegas. Ninety. I mean, two thousand three. Yeah. Let's no, talk about ahead. that. Yeah. Let's talk about that. You ready? Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to jump ahead. Okay. Um, well, for Vegas, for me, yeah, 03. 03 was when I official mo- officially moved here. I was I started hanging out here in the late 90s, though. So I was – I had a pretty – I was always drawn to Vegas because I, I play poker, um, and I just was drawn to the, the excitement of Vegas and so mm-hmm. forth. And, uh, you know, I ended up um, coming here in 03, um, and – as far as DJs, uh, back then was right when the club scene was starting here. So that was like l- light nightclub. That's when I just moved out here in 03 as you well. You too, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was literally the beginning of the sort of quote-unquote upscale or bottle service like nightclubs. Before that, there were only, there was like two or three clubs. You know, there was Roth, the Luxor with War and Peace. You know, there mm-hmm. was... Um, uh, you know, what's the one that was on the strip, the standalone one that was like a house club, uh, Utopia? It's yeah. called Utopia. Yeah. And uh, there was like maybe, oh, there was something at um, at Rio. Club was, Rio. It was Club Rio, right? Yeah. yeah. There was, and so I went to those clubs and they were shitty, you know, and uh, <laughs> not, not um, I mean, you know, whatever. I'm not trying to diss anyone, but, you know, but basically back then, pre this new era. So then 2003 comes along. Right. And there was a lot of opportunity because everyone was trying to do basically a New York style of club. And I had been, you know, spending many years in New York City. Mm -hmm. And because of my relationships with DJs like DJ AM, Mark Ronson, and Stretch Armstrong in particular, I started getting involved in booking DJs. Um, Start initially with the light group um, with Sean Christie when he was still working as like the director of marketing under... Andrew Sasson, um, and the first gig that we ever booked was, we called it the Big City DJ Series, and I think it was 03 or 04, around that time. I think it was 03. Yep, and that was... It was literally called the Big City Big DJ City Series. Big City DJ Series, and, and it starred... And you had ba- um, DJ cards. Playing what cards. That, right? Playing cards. We, uh, had pl- we made playing <laughs> cards, and it was Mark Ronson, DJ AM, Stretch Armstrong, and Eddie McDonald, because Eddie McDonald was... The lo- was the basically ha- the, the the staff DJ for like like that's before never you moved out to I Vegas. I had just moved out here. Okay, like, and then just that yeah, just like I moved out April. Of Eddie McDonald moved in. Eddie's from Jersey, but he was a uh, he moved D- out a year before a year before two thousand two. Okay, yeah, I got it. Mm-hmm. And then honestly, what brought you to Vegas? And then because I have a theory. And <laughs> You're probably right. And yeah, go ahead. I have a theory on why you came to Vegas. And then um, another thing was, how were you tapped into all of these DJs, like Mark Ronson? And I know AM is from Philly, you know what I mean? So, But how did that relationship evolve or how did that come about? You know what I mean? Because well, he's a West Coast. He's You know, he was on the... Who was on the West? Mark? Uh, no, AM, AM, AM was on the yeah, West Coast, he, you he, know? He was in LA. Okay, so knowing... I mean, look. Having grown up in the hip-hop world for so many years, I just knew a lot of DJs. I mean, it's just the way it is. You go to clubs, you know DJs. But then beyond that, even on a personal level, I ended up, um, you know, mm-hmm. becoming good friends with all those guys. All the guys we mentioned are, were just, like, close friends of mine. Um, Stretch, 
Mark Ronson and AM through th- different directions, different like connections, whatever. They became friends, you know, and I, I've always been sort of friend of DJ. That's like one of my roles in life. I, I, I used to have that on my Twitter. I took it off, but it's like I'm, I'm just for some reason, I'm, I find myself very naturally in the role of friend of a DJ, the guy that they hang out with after the party and stuff like that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, some water's being delivered. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, so in that role, I just ended up, you know, I mean, because like, you know, what do we all do when we walk into a club? Walk right to the DJ booth. I've always done that. Right. Even when I was like 20 years old, I would walk into a club. I want to go right to the DJ booth and either hang out with them or just watch what they were doing, see what records they're playing, watch the crowd, that whole thing. So It's, it's always yeah. the safest room in the club. Yeah. yeah, and it's the oh, best, yeah. and it's the it's the best view in the club. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's like a know, safe space. It's yeah. like if you can be in there, if you get in there, if you're if you're allowed for whatever reason to get into the booth. Yeah, it's a safe space where you can <laughs> enjoy the music, and you know, folk. If you're a music oriented, if you're not there for another, you know, if you're there for the music primarily, you're you seeing know. the next record getting played. You know, you're kind of like seeing what's about to happen in the club. It's like a, the probably the best room, the safest room that I, <laughs> I would be in, especially yeah. with AM. Because AM was such a unbelievable hard worker behind the turntables, a guy who, the hardest working man in the DJ business till this day, who never stopped doing something. He was always cueing, mixing, scratching, blending, echoing, fading, something. And lighting a cigarette and smoking a cigarette. Drinking Red Bull, smoking a cigarette. Um, and making it look super easy at the same time. Super dope at the same yeah. time. <laughs> we were just saying that on one of our <laughs> podcasts that we ranked him probably one of the coolest looking DJs. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> if yeah. you know what I mean. Look dope. But you know what I mean. He would be like transforming, <coughs> and he he'd still have a cigarette in his mouth or on like on his finger while he's scratching. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh yeah. He almost like made me want to start smoking. Just, <laughs> just like, it's, cool. it's a pro smoking yeah. advertisement, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, and that fun, that's funny. You saying that reminds me of another image from the past, similar era. DJ Riz, who I know you mentioned, maybe a guest on this show. One so of my one of my favorite homies. favorites. Yeah. yeah, one of the homies and one of the best DJs ever. He mm-hmm. used to put the records in his mouth. You remember this? He would be I DJing. Do, yeah. <laughs> there would be two pieces of vinyl, and then there'd be two more in his two on the turntables and two more in his mouth because he was already thinking what the next thing was going to be and he wanted it that fast yeah he wanted to uh, cue it up that fast so he would yeah. he would dj most of the night with one or two records in his mouth okay Jesus. that's it's how that's how fast pre serato yeah that's how fast he wanted it to be that's the that was his technique for increasing the speed of getting the next record on you know and he was great at speed mixing he was yeah. oh, nasty yeah. nasty yeah amazing i mean he he kind of coined that whole i mean i would say that, that definitive style. club that, style. that quick mixing new york yes. mm-hmm. fast hit him on the one yeah. bring it back mm-hmm. he was i mean I, yeah. I would say he's one of the one of the first dudes that i heard that really did that shit yeah agreed and then mm-hmm. um so then all right i'm a big i gotta talk about this because i'm a big fan it affected me a lot this is and this was at the time of fat beat records independent i'm talking about like the arsonists were big <laughs> Company mm. flow was big. Independent yeah. underground hip hop was emerging. You had uh, who was some of the poster children of uh, underground hip hop at that the time? Rockus era. You mean Rockus. like like, like uh, most deaf, Farrell most Manch, deaf, um, Reflections Eternal, Kanye, Talib Kweli. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some other bigger big ones. Pause. Uh, I'm gonna say Tech Nine. <laughs> Royce, Royce the Five Nine. Royce the Royce Five Nine. Okay, Royce. so yeah. this is what I want to talk about: is Game Records. Sure. 
one of my favorite indie uh indie record hip hop companies that you started, yeah. right? And Game Records were known for a couple of things. <laughs> they were known for they had the best uh like LP record covers, right? They had the best covers because it was all like, I don't. What would you? They, were they porn stars? No, kind of multicultural young ladies. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it was like it was all like the flyest like Latin, black, Asian girls in like bikinis, thongs on the covers. But it had like Royce the Five Nine and Eminem on it. Who's the dude that? Uh, who sampled the price? Is it the prices right? Lord Digger. Lord oh, Digger. I love that song. Yeah, that song was one of the <laughs> illest songs ever. Yeah, it's kind. Of, you know, in a weird way, we talked about Fresh Prince, Girls of the World. It's that, kind of similar. I it's wanted kind of to bring that up. Type it was like more energy. Under, more underground, though, man. <laughs> it's very similar. It's a TV theme song. Yeah. Um, well, after the source, I I got into a re- putting out records. Um, I wanted to be on that side of the business, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, Game Records was born uh, in like the sort of 97, 98, around that time. Um, And we had a nice run, put out a bunch of records with some of the names you mentioned, Royce, Eminem, Lord Digger. I I want to say that was one, that was obviously the beginning of Bad Meets Evil. Yeah. uh, Royce the Five Nine and Eminem. Yeah. And I got, I want to say it might be possibly one of the first or second pressings of Eminem in is you're in, right right yeah it was the first record scary movies it was on scary movies scary movies and oh, nothing man. to do nothing scary to do. movies mm-hmm. got played on funk master flex and it got played on the la whatever was either k-day or whatever the other station LA, K-Day. before any eminem song that was the first eminem song to ever hit the radio was mm-hmm. the only thing he had before that was his ep right mm-hmm. so his his little ep which has um um, you know, curse not you play as worse than Marty Schottenheimer. You know that uh, I, I don't give a I don't fuck, give right? a fuck. Yeah. I just don't no. give a fuck. I just don't give a yeah. So that he had his EP out with with his like six songs, which were great. And you know, long story short, I ended up meeting Paul Rosenberg, who was Eminem's manager. And I said, Hey, man! And so Eminem was already signed to Interscope, but the album had not come out yet. So it was like this period of time where most of the album was done, including My Name Is and all those songs. And they were eager to make a deal because they needed to, to eat, you know. And I said, hey, what, is there any way that we can do like an indie record? I know you have the deal with Interscope. And that's why we did Bad Meets Evil because they, it wasn't called Eminem. Right. It was mm-hmm. called Bad Meets Evil. Yeah. So we, we sidestepped the whole Interscope thing. And, you know, what happened was right after Bad Meets Evil, that's when My Name Is came out, like a, a, month, or, a month later or something, you know, and then... It was off to the moon, you know. Nothing to do was honestly one of my favorite. Like, I I think that could have been like a huge <laughs> club hit if like there was a video or something produced by Reef Rob Tulo. Really, oh, yo, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, like that song, like just hit. And yeah. I, I remember I used to scratch because Eminem said "crooked." Oh, look at my sister. It's crooked, and I used to just scratch. It's crooked. <laughs> it's crooked, and I was like, yo, this is. And I bought four of those records because I was just wearing out. Oh, you were the, the one. vinyl. Okay. Yeah, I was like, you're the source. <laughs> now we 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 had a nice uh, we had a nice run. That record obviously was a big hit for the underground side, and also Boom by Boom, Royce yeah. Five Nine. That was our those are our two biggest. That's hits. Pre- that's premiere, right? Primo, yeah. Primo and Royce together. Now they're doing Prime, which is oh yeah, it's awesome. Now Boom. I got a I got a question about Boom. There's two versions. There's one with scratches. There's a, there's a good version and there's a commercialized crappy version. The good version is the scratches. The one with the scratches, it's it's harder. And, and it the doesn't second have, one was, has a silly chorus. Was, was voice singing almost, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was stupid. <laughs> and did you do that for radio? 
what happened was that whole project, to be honest, and, and, and me and Royce are very cool, and I love Royce to this day. He's a great, great human being on so many levels. At that time, we were both kind of swept up in the moment, and he got signed to – we signed as an album project to Columbia Records, again, different Columbia Records era, and it got too many cooks – problem basically is what ended up happening and it they ended up veering away from the original vision and the biggest example of that is redoing boom which was already such a great record and trying to make it have a chorus it didn't really have a chorus so they wanted to add a chorus so donnie einer who was the president of columbia records we sat in his office and he's like i love this record this is going to be huge but you need to add a chorus so royce went and made that second version which doesn't hit as hard right and Mm -hmm. But, you know, the first one is still a classic, and I, I hear people playing, like Jazzy Jeff, for example, shout to Jazzy Jeff, plays it all the time. Yeah. You know, a lot of DJs who are hip-hop DJs still play that in their set, so, you know, I'm happy for that. So when you did Game Records, it was it was like one-offs kind of, right? With a bunch of, like, underground, like, rappers, up-and-coming rappers, and, you know? Yeah, it was mostly, it was, it was, it was we were part of that raucous era you know that was and raucous to be quite honest was leading the way they were uh-huh. the ones that were kind of carving out the the space and as a result we had a nice run we had some of those records sold 60 70 000 pieces of vinyl that's crazy i mean well, now though. nowadays like yeah i mean boom and and you know scary movies scary and, movies one of my favorite records man. oh thank you thank you but yeah like that, that, yeah i mean i i just when so, a voice comes in the, in the beginning, yeah, I'm not one of the silly rappers. That's just crazy. Oh, yeah. So my theory is evolved on game because to me, game, and I was a big fan of game and the covers. You know, I love seeing like the Latin shorties and the black shorties <laughs> and the Asian shorties come out. <laughs> so then there was like a game, and I would say it was almost like the first Girls Gone Wild, but like a hip hop version of Girls Gone Wild DVD or VHS tape. It's called Hip Hop Honeys. Hip Hop Honeys yeah, that yeah. you started. Yeah. And that was game too. That right? was under game as well. Yes, that's right. And I remember I bought one <laughs> and it was there was a scene in Vegas. Yeah. And my theory was that you went to Vegas to shoot this <laughs> and you somehow fell in love with that city or you made some connections there and you're like, yo, like, I might, you know, I might have to make the move out here. You know what? You're not far off. I mean, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty accurate. I mean, it's it's it was, um, yeah. That was around the time when I realized that I could run the different businesses I was pursuing, which was basically records and DVDs from here, because I I felt that there was a lot of opportunity here, and I also felt that the city was was welcoming in the sense that the, the, if you had these kind of ideas and you had these connections you could do things with it you know yeah. mm-hmm. and part of it is just running the businesses setting up an office having a staff having a place you know new york city as we know is a very expensive city mm-hmm. you know and running a business out here is a much better proposition mm-hmm. but also just being in the city and the energy you're right when we started filming things here started hanging out here that's when i be- started thinking mm, maybe i should just move up the whole operation here and that's ended up what ended up happening i i i feel what like i kind of felt or I, I had this theory because when i first came out here and i did my first like trial run at light uh from my residency from new york to before i moved out to vegas i came here and i was like wow like they haven't really seen our type of breed of hustle does that make sense like yeah the hustle that never brings the hustle that i bring the hustle that you bring 
and our our kind of like our perspective, our wide perspective on the music and business and everything. It's like they don't know about that yet. No, I agree. I've always said that if you come to Vegas, now it's changed now because it's right. many years later. But back then, if you had that New York mindset where you think outside the box, you're not just trapped in this, you know, one role or anything like that. Like you, you understand all these other connections. You're right. That was an edge for a long time here. Knowing people, knowing things, understanding music, understanding markets marketing all that mm -hmm. that was an edge for a long time over what what had existed previously with the club scene and the music scene here um now I, that being said the one thing i that i learned was when i was doing game records and hip-hop honeys out here i was i was selling to the whole the whole country and the whole world much like hiphopsite.com war and peace and, and piso who are good friends of mine they we're selling vinyl to the whole country. Yeah. So we ended up setting up our offices on Maryland Parkway, across yeah. from UNLV. I remember that, yeah. Wow, I, you know, I used to go vinyl shopping there. Yeah, uh, right when, and that was, so like that was sort of my connection here was Warren and um, Pizzo. And um, so both of us were sort of, oh man, look, we're, we're, we're selling stuff to the whole country and the whole world. And everyone in Vegas is only just focused on Vegas. So it gave us sort of this feeling like, oh, we're doing big things, you know, global shit, global from Vegas, shit. Yeah. But that ended up kind of biting us in the ass, all of us, because like, you know, the vinyl market kind of dried up, right. the DVD market kind of dried up. Right. Mm -hmm. And what was popping? Clubs, clubs in Vegas. Mm -hmm. So the thing that we kind of looked down on ended up being a much longer lasting industry actually than what we were doing. So in other words, the club scene in Vegas, which at first when it was just those clubs we mentioned earlier, right. it was just like really small and it, was, it wasn't that fun and there weren't that many DJs and all that. But then this little niche ended up being like the biggest thing ever in like live music, you know, like a huge, huge mm -hmm. industry with tons of money and tons of opportunity mm -hmm. and tons of things going on in all these venues and all these DJs. Right. So I ended up, what, what started for me as almost like a side project, which with, with those DJs, I mentioned AM, Ronson, Stretch, and others, mm -hmm. Premier, Tony Touch, people like that. You were bringing all of these guys yeah. to Vegas. I would be the first, sometimes the first time they ever play Vegas exactly. and stuff like that. And, and then there was others, you know, um, but yeah, that ended up, maybe it was like 10% of my work day, and then it became 20%, then it became 30%, and pretty soon I was like, once all the other stuff started sort of fading away, vinyl faded away, DVDs faded away, all because of technology, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's when I started focusing more on live DJs and nightclubs. So I want to paint this picture, and never, I mean, you, you know, you moved out here in 2003, Three, yeah. I moved out here in 2005, end of 2005, beginning of 2006. Mm -hmm. When I met Shecky, it was at this, I would say, legendary hip-hop night, which was Thursday, Bounce Thursdays at Light. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, I remember that, actually. I remember that. So I would go in to Bounce Thursdays at Light and uh -huh. never would always be spinning there, you know? So, like, <laughs> never was the known hip-hop dude there. Yeah. And I would walk in and... I don't know if I knew how you looked, but I saw you walk in, and she Shecky walks in, <laughs> and I was like, all right. Who? And then he has, I'm not fucking with you, like 20, 20 to 30 like bad Asian Latin chicks following him. 
all the hip hop honeys were <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I would, and he would, he got his table and it was set up, and then it was just like just. I would I would look at it and I would just be like, yo, who is that? And he's like, yo, that's Shaq. And I was like, that's. And then I was like, okay, yo, that's game. That's the hip hop honeys. I'm like, yo, that shit is real. <laughs> I'm like, yo, that shit is real. I was looking at. I was like, yo, that's crazy. And then I remember Francine D was like big, right? Yes. Yeah. She, she, she was, was like this big, big part of it. Yeah, big part. She was like a. She was like the star, like the the big titty Asian chick import model, right? Who's mm-hmm. killing the scene? Import. And then the fact that she was like hanging out and chilling, and then she was also, you know, dancing on the side a little bit. But like, yo, the fact that you saw these people like in person, it was like, yo, this is real. <laughs> I was like, yo, this shit is crazy. And we all, we, you know, that was the, those are the glory days. Yeah, for and sure. I would, um. I would go up to check. I'd be like, yo, what up, man? You know, and then he's always humble, always cool. And I would always like, he was probably annoyed at that time. You know, he's trying to like talk to shorties and talk business <laughs> i'm like yo tell me about some source shit like tell me some shit from back in the day <laughs> I'm like yo now. let me let me hear some real shit let me hear some real stories and shit like that and uh i, rem- I do have a vague recollection of, of those days and um also of never always being super cool uh, during that time mm-hmm. because we a lot of times we'd have other djs coming in and out and never was always so easy to deal with and when, when it came to all that and i did yeah, that was a great era i mean that was Part of that whole time, we were booking DJs, but they also had to do events. They had to do things that we could do that were local. You didn't have to bring a lot of DJs, so there was doing the Game Girls. But you night. were you were instrumental. You're the dudes that was bringing these DJs here first because these these nightclubs and marketing people in Las Vegas, they don't know these these DJs. They don't know AM. They don't know Mark Ronson. So you're kind of, I mean, at the time, remember it evolved to them calling us mashup DJs? Yeah. When we were just club DJs. Yeah. Well, that was, mashup is a, yeah, a kind of amorphous word that means a lot of different things. Right. But like, you know, yeah, that was the era of, well, AM, of course, pushed the agenda in terms of bringing every genre together. And that became the standard, you know, like he set the standard very high and then everyone followed. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, hip hop DJs, mashup DJs, as opposed to house DJs, because back then the house was in the small room and hip hop was in the big room. Now it's back to that. I, I don't. I don't know where we're at in that cycle now. The yeah. cycle it's is kind of confusing right now. Right? Yeah, yeah. it's like it's like the cycle goes. But in the beginning, in in the early those early O three days, house with D- Dead Mouse was in the back room and like with like a hundred people, <laughs> and Eddie McDonald was in the main room or whoever or Neva or you or whoever it was playing to the main crowd and the house was a small thing and then somewhere you know and i I always feel like it somehow coincided with the passing away of dj am Mm -hmm. because when Mm -hmm. he passed away is exactly when edm took off yeah and without am to kind of lead the way for the other side there was no one stopping these european guys just coming in from claiming to be the big they were big i mean they were because they're producers are not just DJs, you know, the people that make <coughs> records that everyone knows. And so it's like, that's the reason that they got so big and mm-hmm. so forth. But um, I yeah. would say we would all agree with that theory. Like everybody yeah, in this room. Yeah. yeah. When AM passed and he was really the guy who was um, pushing the craft of DJing. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say he was pushing EDM music or anything because at a certain point he was playing Daft Punk. I mean, no, he, he played all that. No, he played, he played all of that shit. Yeah. But he he did it like with some hip hop sense to it. He yes. did it with yeah. the yes. the old, not the old school, but he did it with the traditional hip hop craft of DJing. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Absolutely. And, and not 
what we see EDM DJs, not all EDM DJs, but most EDM DJs don't DJ. They don't DJ. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what's crazy? Like that year he passed, uh, he did EDC. He was at EDC. He yeah. performed at yeah. EDC. And it was like mad hip hop ish. And it's not even like, it was not EDM ish. Yep. You're right. I mean, he was, he was still dropping. Uh, what do you he call was, it? He was playing Metallica. Around the world and something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, he was playing yeah. a bunch of crazy shit. But he was playing, um, what do you call it? Today is going to be yeah. the day. He was Oasis. still, yeah. he was still yeah. playing Oasis. <laughs> yeah. For yeah. them, he was doing that that legendary set that mm-hmm. he does. You know yeah. what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And so, that, so you know, I mean, what I, what I like to say when I reflect on all those years is I was lucky. I lived through two golden eras. The golden era of hip-hop, which is close to my heart, and the golden era of EDM, which is not necessarily close to my heart, but I did see a lot of shit, and I did get to see, uh-huh. you know, at that point, I was ended up working with the win pretty much. After I did the booking DJs for a while, I ended up basically becoming that role at the win. So I was working with the win nightlife from about 2009 to 2014 or so, and 14, 15. And Crazy. But that was during the EDM explosion. But we we got to go back a little bit to AM and Mark Ronson. Okay. Now, when we were DJing, DJs were getting a certain amount of money. And I don't know if it attributes to you and what you were doing to negotiate the deals, but Shecky was negotiating and somehow making these million-dollar motherfucking deals for DJs yeah. that no one ever fucking heard of. I remember when AM's... First signed a first $1 million contract or a multi-million dollar contract yeah. with Pure. Yeah. And he would be off to the side saying like, yeah, yeah we got some, we got some, we got some cooking. What was that, we got 2006? Some was that 2006? When that, when uh, Seven, AM's first? Seven, maybe? No, six no. Or seven? No, no. It was, it, was, it was earlier. It was like five or six. Yeah. Five or six. Yeah. Um, yeah, the biggest, the biggest, AM was leading the way creatively. He was also leading the way in the terms of business because he, was very good at recognizing his own self-worth. That was the lesson of, of many lessons I learned from him. It was know what you are worth and stand up for it. Like he was like starting to get more and more popular. And first he was getting 1,500 out here. Then he was getting 2,500 out here. Then he was getting 5,000 out here. And it kept going up and up. And then he made that big move to Pure. And there was a story which I've told before, which involves basically me sitting down with Stevie D, who was the head of Pure at that time, um, and throwing, I mean, we had discussed, you know, I wasn't, I was AM's Vegas friend and like Vegas agent, you could say. I wasn't really his manager, but I sometimes played that role a little bit. And I had discussed with the other people like what we wanted. And basically, I walked in and, and you know, I, I said, he was already the biggest DJ in Vegas at that point. He had been doing um, hard rock, right, yeah. prior to that, right? Mm-hmm. So, he was the by far, and he was also dating Nicole Richie. Mm-hmm. So he was in the People magazine every week. I mean, he was like on t- on the news every night on like Entertainment Tonight and stuff like that. Yeah. He was a very big star at that moment. And so we walked into the room, and I said to Stevie D, "Hey, look, man, like if there's who would be the biggest possible DJ I could help get for you right now?" And he's like, "AM," and I was like, "Yes, there is an opportunity at the right price that he will jump ship." And he's like, "What's that price?" I, I, I told you I play poker, so I put my poker face on, <laughs> and I, I wrote. It's like one of those old school movies. I wrote it on a piece of paper. You slid it to him. I slid it to him. I didn't even want to <laughs> utter the words because I, I knew if I said it, like my voice would crack or something. You know, I didn't want to like say the word. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I can be honest, a piece of paper said $20,000 for a night, per night. It's a 20, 20, 20K or something, right? Uh-huh. And he goes, and he looks at it and he goes, I can do this. And he wrote back and it said like 18,500. And I was like, and I was like, this is it. I remember all the books I've read about negotiation. If you don't do it now, you're never gonna like claw it back. So I wrote back 19,500 and he said, okay. So basically after that happened, you know, the news got out yeah. and not by me, but you know, AM and his people, not a, somebody in his camp started blabbing about it. And we so all, everybody, we all heard about it. Everybody found out about Yeah. Everyone found out and like it raised the bar up here. Exactly. So now it's like, okay, 50 nights, a, you know, every weekend, once a week, 50 times a year, 20 K a night. That's a million dollars. So that's why that that whole thing started. Of the million dollars was was from that moment. Basically. And then and so and you're the reason why we get cheese now. <laughs> Appreciate well, it, Shay. Well, he's the reason why we got cheese. And then when AM passed, we kind it, it kind of fell through a little bit. But mm. yeah. So when that happened, it gave every DJ the opportunity to renegotiate and raise their prices <laughs> up, which was a good thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you the ceiling got a lot higher. Yeah. The ceiling got way higher. Yeah, he right? broke it. <laughs> yeah. And then you raised the ceiling even higher when he moved to the Palms, right? Yeah. That was, yeah. That was, and also, don't forget, he also did LAX. LAX is oh, right. Yeah, yeah. There was another stop in, the, in between because that was another Stevie D club was LAX. But he was bouncing from like pure and LAX or no? I think he was doing both of those at the same time. I think so. Um, Wait, they were doing Tangerine. So tangerine, right? I don't think AM did Tangerine. No. No? no, but that was Stevie D, right? That was Stevie. That D. was Stevie D. Yeah, yeah. but Ian was doing Pure and um, LAX. Okay, Where yeah. back and forth. This yep. is after Body English. After Body, after English. Body English, yes. Yeah. And that was the same. And then he, st- the first gig ever was at this one at Light. This 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 DJ series I mentioned. That was his first Vegas gig. How was that? That was awesome. He killed it. He destroyed that. That was. Uh, I, I have a story. Was you there <laughs> the first ahead. the first time AM ever did Light, back in '02? So not this big city DJ series. No, before this. Oh, I didn't know there was an earlier one. Well, this, Are you sure I was, you're not the same one. You might be talking about the same one. I don't or think not? so. I was in New York. I was flying from New York to Vegas to DJ, and it had double booked us. Me and AM, and this is back in the days when light they had the rotary mixer. Okay, like a they didn't Yuri? have a crossfader. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, they didn't have a crossfader. Uh huh. And they booked AM to DJ, and he couldn't DJ. He didn't want to do it. So he he didn't get on, or he did get on. He tried to get on. But he couldn't. He didn't want to fuck with the rotary. There he was, was no like, fader. There was, was no fader. He was just like, ah, I don't. Was this like a corporate event or like a regular club? A regular night? club night. Hmm. I didn't know about. That. I honestly never heard nah. about that. I never heard that story. But I he's never. not the only DJ that that walked that said they couldn't do it and walked off the at not, light. Not, not walked the off the original. He was the biggest though. at light. At light, yeah. When but, you went up the escalators, the old school. Yeah, light. the old school light. Yeah. And he was like, I was like, I, I opened up for him. He came in. He was DJing, and then he was just like, fifteen minutes in, he was like. Nah, I'm gonna chill, man. I, I can't do this. Man, I need, I didn't I need know a that. cross fader. I did uh, not know that. That reminds me, though, of another light story. This is kind of similar. Pete Rock came, and I didn't book him. Um, I got involved late for some reason. I I got a call from Sean. He's like, "Hey, man, like, I need your help. Pete Rock is showing up. Can you please go pick him up at the airport? He has to get on. He's going on at midnight or whatever, at one a.m. Whatever it was. It was like midnight." And uh, so I go to pick up Pete Rock. I knew him just a little bit. You know, we reconnected. He was late. He missed his original flight. He didn't show up 
let's just say he has to go on at midnight. He landed at like 11.15 or something, okay? So it was like time crunch. I pick him up. He starts saying, I don't want to DJ. I want to eat. I, I need to eat, man. I need to eat. You know, you know. And, and so he like, <laughs> he wants to go to In-N-Out. And I was like, no. And I said, no. I said, man, no. So we can't. <laughs> we have to go to the club because like you're late and we have to get there. So we get there. And of course, back then it was the record. So we had to, that was the thing. Whenever we booked a DJ back then, you had to account for the time of carrying all the records because mm-hmm. they would travel, especially Riz and people like that with like, six crates of records i mean it was like a lot of shit you had to go to baggage claim wait for that shit wait for that shit then you had to load it up and you had to wheel it out in the car and then when you got to to bellagio you had to unload it immediately take it to the club (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. and and (laughs) that point the club was already open so that was a clusterfuck and that dj booth at light was about as as big as like a a small closet in like a studio (laughs) apartment in new york (laughs) so he shows up with his crate so we get there eddie is djing and it's, you know, it's a regular, I think it was a Sunday night. It, it was, was like a the, Sunday. I remember night. that night. Yeah. It was their big night. So mm-hmm. it was a Sunday night. So that's their big, big, everyone in Vegas. It was the big industry night. night industry at the night. Time. Yeah, at yeah. the time. The biggest industry night at the time. So he, I see Pete and I look down and he starts to sort through his records. And what do I see? EPMD, Jungle Brothers and Tribe Called Quest. And I see all these like classic hip hop. And I'm like, uh-oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> I already know <laughs> this is not going to go well because that was not what they were expecting. That's what Pete was expecting to play, but that's not what the club was expecting to hear. So, but no one, again, I said, I didn't book this one. So whoever I booked it did not properly explain. Right. It was probably Sean Christie. It probably was uh, someone else. I, I don't want to throw someone under the bus, but I know who it was. <laughs> oh, okay, I, I actually know who it was. Oh, okay. But anyway, anyway, he didn't, that person did not properly explain. So anyway, he, he gets on and the first song, is raw by Big Daddy Kane. And the sound, the audio quality goes way down because that song is like very thin. It doesn't really have like highs and lows. It's like, you know, it's like very kind of like trebly. It's like really thin. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so suddenly like the whole club feels different. And then he lets it play all the way through the third (laughs) verse, through the fucking chorus, the third chorus. (laughs) The next one comes on, it was, uh, I can't remember, it was another similar, like, golden era song, which was great for me, but at that point, people start leaving, and Sean starts flipping out, all the staff, so I go, and I'm like, hey, man, like, you know, and he's DJing, so, you know, it's the worst fucking feeling in the world. Right. When someone sends, you know, and these crazy club owners of Vegas, I know you guys have experienced this many times. Yes. Oh, especially yeah, in your yeah. early days. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> Somebody yeah. showing up yeah. at light in particular. Yeah. Someone trying to tell you what to play while you're DJing, okay? So, which is a very uncool thing to do, okay? And any time, all right, for any DJ. So... I go up and I like tap him on the shoulder and say, hey man, like, you know, and like, can you, can you, um, listen, they're not really feeling the golden era stuff. Can you play? And he was like, yo, that's all I brought. That's all I brought. And Eddie, thank God, was there with his records. So mm-hmm. Eddie saw what was going on and he's like, I got you, I got you. And he starts showing him his records. And then Pete reaches down. I remember he throws on Headsprung. LL Cool J, which was a more mainstream song at that yeah. time, mm-hmm. was yeah. a big hit. Yeah. Yeah. And that point, everything goes fine. He starts playing Eddie's records, so the night went well. That was, of course, also pre-Serato. Uh-huh. So it wasn't like in these days when you, oh, you want to play house? Okay, boom. Yeah. You want to play this? Boom. It was like, if you didn't have those records, you were fucked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway. It's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> I remember Eddie telling me that. 
And then Eddie felt bad too. That yeah. uh, I mean, both. And he's of you like, guys. this guy's a class. This guy's a legend. I don't want to. I don't want to tell him what to play. Like, and by the way, that same scenario repeated itself many times over the years with <laughs> Steve Aoki, with with not just hip hop DJs, yeah. where the owner of a club doesn't like what he's hearing, and me or someone like me has to go and tell this guy who we're paying like tens of thousands of dollars to not to play to play something you know to play more like this or more like that that. happened a lot at light though i remember i used to like run away from the dj booth yeah if i had if there was a guest dj and the owners didn't like him they'd be like oh never you got to go to the dj and tell him (laughs) you got to kick him off and i'm like i'm not this dude's a legend i'm not gonna kick him off so i used to like hide and shit by the bar i used to do this never so never could kick him off and get back on i used to do this exactly Exactly. i used to do the same shit and then some when I first moved out there, I was like, "This is crazy shit. What's going on?" Some of the shit that they had out there, like they were just like what? Oh my god! That was you definitely... want me to say? I don't want to say it, but <laughs> if you can't <laughs> say it for later, <laughs> shit. I remember one night, and I'm not gonna say his name. He was a big executive at nowhere <laughs> at the at a big hotel, uh-huh. <laughs> and they and I think you know about this. They went. It was the guy's birthday. Uh, I, I, as soon as you said big executive, I already knew who you meant. <laughs> It was the guy's birthday, and I was DJing, and they wouldn't let any men into the club. They yeah. only let women into the I club. I did one of those b- birthday parties as well, the year did before, you? I think. Yeah. yeah the same so, guy. And it was, and it was <laughs> like, the only, <laughs> only guys that was there was that guy, the birthday guy. <laughs> His boys. Um, Matt Damon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't give it away. That's going to give ben, it away. Ben Affleck. No, that's okay. It doesn't, that, that, that <laughs> that's what I was saying. That guy's not going to hear this show, I promise you. Well, all I know is that there were these, like, they were just only maybe 25 to 30 dudes at the club, mm-hmm. and they just kept letting the women go in. Yeah. And by by 1 o'clock, it was like a sea of women. Yeah. Oh, man. And it was just me DJing for all these girls. Oh, you're like the Playboy Mansion. Yeah. It was, Damn. and I said, only in Vegas would this happen. Like, no, nowhere <laughs> fucking else would this happen, yo. This is crazy. <laughs> I would, like, text my boys in New York, like, yo, you, don't, you wouldn't believe what the fuck I just had to do. Wow. And what what you what I just saw, awesome. or when they would have meetings at the club till about twelve thirty or one a.m., they decided to have a meeting in the nightclub on like a Saturday. What? And they would have me have the you volume have to turn the music oh, down. The vo- the so, vo- they, so they could, so they could hear so they each, could other. each other. Oh my yeah. god! So the volume would be at six or like five, and the club would be packed. It'd be packed, and people That's were just so standing weird. around <laughs> like. Like, not really <laughs> dancing, but like, you know. It's kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> lounge atmosphere. And then the manager would come up and be like, there's no energy in the floor. And I'm like, you know, like the, it's not loud enough. <laughs> 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 All right. So the, so, so the next stage of, you know, after the whole kind of mashup hip hop stage, we started going into um, EDM, what they would call EDM. We called it house. And somehow it just started getting. <laughs> we always go through this thing when I, when I talk with these guys. And I think a lot of new DJs don't understand because they think they this this term open format, they think it's been around forever. And the concept of open format has been around forever. But at some point, these nightclubs give these names for certain things. And you would know about this, right? Like, it's just different names for hip hop. 100% I agree with you. Yeah. Open format is the weirdest name because it's like, there's no such music called open format, right? I mean, I guess by definition it means you play everything, right? But 
can you imagine someone like whenever I see it on a flyer, I always laugh because it's like, who in the world says, I can't wait to go out and hear some open formats. Nobody. Like literally nobody, <laughs> literally nobody gets excited. I can't, oh man, he's going to be playing some open format. Like you love open format, put your hands in the air. It's just stupid. It's just like, and that's what the word mashup you mentioned before kind of became the same, means the same thing. Exactly. Um, but I agree totally. That's just another it's way to say hip hop. It now it's trap. Yeah, right. Now if they say trap, exactly. it means yeah. hip hop. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, yo, it's like hip. It went from hip hop to like rock mashup, right? And then mm. it went to like EDM, and then now it's open format, and it's just everyone coining these terms for something that we've been doing for like 15, 20 Since plus we years. DJing. Like we haven't yeah. changed our style no. at all. We're still doing the same style that we did. They just keep changing the name yeah. of what the fuck we do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I keep trying to explain that. And a lot of these younger DJs just think like. Man, like, what are you talking about, mash? That's another thing. I'm like, no, we were doing that shit, and we still do that shit, except no one's doing it live. Yeah. Like, you guys are just pre-recording a remix, and now you're using instruments and keyboards in Ableton, and now, you know, you're, you're reproducing certain things, but it's it's kind of like what we were doing, which is blending records, putting one acapella on another beat, mm -hmm. you know, so, remixing shit, you know? Side note, I just remember that one of my favorite mashups is your... Uh, Jay-Z and, um, you know, Arrested take, take On Me. Oh, oh, with AHA. AHA, Take On Me <laughs> with, with Jay-Z. With Hey Pop, <laughs> yeah. I, I Poppy or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. You <laughs> did that, right? That yeah, was yeah. yours. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Oh, shit. That's embarrassing. I, that I feel embarrassed, you know? <laughs> it fit perfectly. It fit perfectly, man. We were at Go it, check it out. We were at it at the end of this hour podcast. You guys can listen to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, let's talk about you going into the EDM era because... I mean, uh, like you said, with the passing of AM, right? <coughs> it's, the music shifted. It was a dramatic shift. And uh, I would say we hip-hop had to take a, like a, like you said, we moved into the side rooms. Yeah. We took an L. Yeah. For a while. <laughs> we did. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also want to have your opinion on some DJs, open format DJs or hip-hop DJs that crossed over to EDM yeah. and how you feel about that. All right, we'll get to that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Which one do you want to talk about first? Yeah. Well, let's talk about how you evolved to, like, The Wind. That was, The Wind, when you moved to The Wind, that was probably the EDM era. It, was, right? it coincided almost exactly. I, when I went to start working there, it was when Blush was still open. I so, Blush. And the, that was when they were building Surrender and Encore Beach Club. So that was exactly 2009, 2010, exactly when... The, the EDM thing was just like about to start. It was basically the first artists that we booked for Surrender Encore Beach Club were Cascade for the daytime and Steve Aoki at night. And so I learned a lot from both of them, to be honest with you. I was closer to Aoki because I met him through AM. So I actually brought that relationship to the table in the very beginning from, you know, AM, we always like to say, still connects people. Even at, he's passed away many years ago. He still connects people, you know. People and it was through that banana split thing he did. Right. So AM, yeah. AM bef you know, before he passed away, was doing a very popular L.A. party, banana split with Steve Aoki. So that was honestly, and Aoki will admit this, and he's talked about this a lot, that made Aoki. That's, mm -hmm. that's the party that made Aoki a big name in L.A. He was already, obviously, from a famous family in L.A., but he, um, that time frame, you know, he became our first nighttime DJ, and he was playing, still to this day, really hard, 
extreme sounding things, very different from what was normally played in clubs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas Cascade was perfect for the daytime because he was m more uplifting, mellower, sort of like, you know, still partying. Like a deep house. Right? Deep house vibe, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that was the very beginning or also around the time when Dead Mouse was doing Excess. And so all that kind of happened at the same time. Not to interrupt you, I remember what we called Aoki sound or that EDM sound before they called it EDM and they were calling it Electro. Electro. Oh, yeah. yeah. Electro. I forgot about that. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> Electro refers to, well, just to be fair for all the youngins out there, uh -huh. Electro initially referred to, I mentioned before, Planet Rock, that kind of music. That's Electro. That's what we call 80s Electro or like hip. Craftwork? Craft, well, Craftwork's a class by itself. That's my yeah, favorite, one of my that. favorite groups of all yeah. time. But, mm -hmm. but no, 80s Electro is, is, is Planet Rock, played at your own risk, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, but Electro that you're referring to is the hard dance music with more of a rock edge. Like the Electro from the, the Aoki Electro was like House of Jealous Lovers and like all those kind of songs. Ooh, I forgot like, about that. That's a great yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, a great record. But like it was more like a rock singer with like electronic music. Mm -hmm. That was the original. And it came out of Brooklyn originally. There was... Elect it was m that modern electro had more of a rock edge. It was like usually a white male singer right. singing in like a rock and roll style over electronic beats. Then the electro did become the word for that whole genre. So was it yeah. like block party and shit like that? Yes, yeah. exactly. Like love, yeah. It, love is gone, like yeah. records like that? Like okay. um, things like, you know, um, yeah, like... Uh, MGMT? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So we were calling like that was electro, and that was like the emergence of banana split, electro rock. Sometimes, it was yeah, called. electro rock, banana yeah. split, um, and then it was like Baltimore House. Oh like, yeah, be more, be more, be more was big. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of phases, right? And that was when I think of that, I think of banana split mm -hmm. because they that that was like the emergence in LA of that electro rock, a Baltimore House. Mixed with a little bit of like hard ass hip hop or trap, you yep. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. well, Down south shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So then you were you were working with Steve Aoki through AM, right? So he he was the first guy to play Surrender. Um, that was and it was the first night. I remember it was a Friday night, and his shit sounded like it was coming from another planet. I mean, <laughs> it was straight car alarm electro it was like sounded like you know when you leave a car what was the crowd response <laughs> on the street like an, the annoying yeah. i mean the it was very very aggressive and very edgy and it didn't sound anything like what normally got played so the crowd didn't know what to do and no one knew what to do except you know you know i gotta say he ended up moving the whole world over to him like the whole world didn't understand and now here it is a decade later or whatever it is and the whole world has moved to him in other words he stuck to his guns to his credit mm -hmm. and played what he believed in and that ended up being popular but at the time it was alien sounding it sounded but like you, it was from another planet but were you getting that tap from the manager that the was owner? The, the, the one of the yes i used to have to go and a few times and it, it was a really difficult thing to do is to like you know, and Steve Aoki, as you know, is a great live performer. Even back then, he wasn't as polished as he is now, mm -hmm. but he was still very, very into the show, very, you know, energy, jumping, engaging with the crowd, all that. And 
sometimes I had to tap him on the shoulder. And, and it got to the point where I remember I saw his set so many times and I would know the parts where it was be okay. Because it would be some stuff, like he would remember that song, he did that song with Will I Am, I'm in the house. Yeah, that was a good yeah. song. Mm-hmm. So when he got to that part of the set, I could relax because I knew this is going to be okay. This, 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 for the next 20 minutes, I'll be like off the hook. But then he would go back into the real noisy side, and I would be like, that's when I would be just like you guys hiding, hiding on the other side of the room. By the bar. Right, to try to like avoid that, that moment, you know? But um, so they got past that. But there was, a, there, was a, there was a crazy time, like you just said, where a lot of DJs were being pulled because. Well, did you, did you, when you were at The Wind or on those properties yeah. and EDM was kind of emerging, were you still trying to bring in hip hop DJs, you know? Yes, and there was a very famous scene. Where DJ Jazzy Jeff got pulled. Do you remember that story? Je- you yeah. know, D Miles was asking. Yeah, that was, that was a question. That, that's the question you're gonna ask. <laughs> yeah, okay. but thanks for even bringing that up. Yeah, Made it a lot easier. So. <laughs> yeah, he that was, was he was nervous to ask about that. <laughs> no, yeah. that was that was definitely the 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 most frustrating moment in my win experience that night for sure, because. What happened was is, and I'll be totally honest in telling the story, and, and I'm friends with many people involved, okay? Basically, Jazzy Jeff, it was an AM tribute night. So there was mm-hmm. a lot of people there wearing AM shirts. I was there that night, yeah. And wearing, there was posters, and there was, like, signs, and there was everything. It was AM night. And it wasn't too long after he died. It was, like, maybe a year after he died. Mm-hmm. I think it was one year later. Yeah. I think it was the one-year anniversary. I think so, too, yeah. And... <clears throat> Jazzy Jeff was the headliner, and there were other DJs opening, and it was like it was people that knew him. So it was, I think, it was like Vice, and it was um, Dig Dug. Dig probably, Dug. Yeah. It was Dig Dug, and I think Justin Hoffman even played a little bit, mm-hmm. and there was some <laughs> other people. And Milo, Milo was there. Yeah. yeah, and so then Jazzy Jeff comes on, and his set, for whatever reason, is low energy. Now I'll be totally honest, it wasn't a high energy set. He was playing. I remember he was playing genuine. My Pony remix, some remix of My Pony, but it was slow. It was that's a slow song actually, uh-huh. and um, and I remember like it was it, the, okay. The most some of the crowd were fine, you know, like probably sixty percent of the crowd normal, but there was a, a little bit of antsiness because this was now we're starting to get into the EDM era. Right. So hearing that sounded now that starts to sound like old. it doesn't fit. Yeah, yeah, it just sounded old. It sounds right. old. Right. And it sounds slow. The funny thing is he could do that set now and it would be even more relevant now because yeah. everyone's like obsessed with the 90s and like, you know, early yeah. 2000 records, you know. So basically, long story short is that I'm asked to pull Jazzy Jeff and I said, no, I would not do it. And they were like, if you don't pull Jazzy Jeff, we're going to do it. And I was like, well, I'm not doing it. So they sent the security over oh, shit. to some big security guy who doesn't know anything, and honestly, and I'm going to throw him under the bus, he was, I mean, he can say he was just following orders, which he was, okay? He goes over with the security, and they, and I was standing helplessly, and they watch, and they pull Jazzy Jeff. They make him stop. They make him stop DJing, and he has to leave, and they make him kind of leave the venue, even. Oh, and it was so Fuck. embarrassing. He was there to pay tribute to AM. Like, it was an AM party, and, like, it's Jazzy Jeff, you know? And it was, like, and then that story got out. Right. And people started to, it got made it to, like, page six, New York Post, and 
places like that. And it became a story. But then, if you remember, he also got pulled somewhere else, like another oh, around Kansas. that same time. Wasn't it around Z Trip or something? Yeah, it was in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was around the same time, was it? 2010. Really? Yeah, around the same time he got pulled somewhere else. So, like, it became, it, it, in a weird way, it became a story about Jazzy Jeff. Like, why does he keep getting pulled, you know? And I don't know why. I mean, the, in that case, I, the reason was we had entered the EDM era. It was the first year of the EDM era. And it was very frustrating. And, and yeah. I Do mean, you, I mean, two things. Well, it, it was definitely a sign of like something is going wrong when you're pulling Jazzy Jeff, right? <laughs> That's, if you, and it's like two signs. It's like two signs of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It happened like like you said, like back to back almost. And then and Kansas was because he w- he was playing a uh, hip hop and like a rock bar. It was mall. a festival. Yeah, it was. Yeah, like it was a festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an outdoor festival with, with Z Trip. And Z Trip was actually embarrassed about it. I yeah, Z Trip was like I played Bone Thugs and stuff like that, and they didn't pull me. But I I want to say. Did you maybe regret that maybe you should have said it like instead of had the security come in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I because I mean, l- luckily, I think my friendship with him survived. Like, but it was it, at, for a while. Yeah, I was really I regretted a lot of things about it. I mean, but I also didn't want to be the one. No, I was like, no, I'm not. I've known Jazzy Jeff before I knew the win. Right. I knew Jazzy Jeff a little bit in Philly in the 80s. You know what I mean? So I was. I'm go. I go back further with him than I do with the wind guys. So I'm not gonna jeopardize that for someone's opinion about music, you know. And the truth was, he was playing a slow tempo. Like it wasn't the right but, choice. Like it was. Uh, all right. So, but but the right thing. Right. Go. You gonna say? <laughs> no, I was there that night. Yeah. He was doing a set that he usually does. Right. It does. It wasn't anything different. It was a Jesse did he, Jeff did set. Did he have a uh, mad skills on the no, mic with him? He no, I, he I don't think he was there that night. No. Fuck. You that know, probably probably suffered because of that a little bit. He, been, yeah. he um he's so technical, and I think he needs that mad skills there just to create MC. No way. interact with the crowd. Yeah, he doesn't really yeah. talk at all. He doesn't yeah. interact, yeah. and he's so technical. Like he's doing such technical shit mm-hmm. that yeah, he's very serious. You know what right. I mean? Yes. And it's just uh, yeah. Actually, I, you know what? Now that I remember to 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 tell the whole story, I did actually go. Initially, I did go, but I didn't talk to him. I talked to his manager there, uh-huh. and I said, hey, man, they're starting to beef about the music, not not being the right, you know, you got to pick up the energy. And he's like, you want me to tell him to pick up the tempo? And I was like, yes, please, tell him to pick up the tempo. So I did actually attempt to intervene right. with before the real shit hit the fan. Yeah. I tried to, I tried to kind of like preempt the bad thing from happening. But he did tell him. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen fast enough or whatever. They, you know you know how they are. They want the next they, – they want to change something. They want it instantly. They want that record right now. Yeah. He was he's, – he's a skillful DJ who's trying to build up to something. <laughs> he's trying yeah. to transition from yeah. like yeah. – yeah. He's not going to throw in some song like just because some guy in a suit tells him to play I, it. I'm going to tell you something. Transitioning from Pony BPMs, which yeah. is like what? Like 80, 80 75? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Going from that <coughs> to like 130, I guess you could have done it maybe 125. Shit, depends on what song. What what songs were popping in 2010? I'm trying to remember. Was that party rock era? Yeah, yeah, it was party. Yeah. A lot of yeah. LMFAO, yeah, a lot man. of remixes, sure about shots in. <laughs> that would have worked, dude. That's a lot that's, of Black Eyed Peas stuff. Yeah, exactly. yeah. that's got to yeah. be one of the worst eras, though. For, for club music, kind of, kind a little of, bit. Yeah. yeah, it was weird. It didn't feel like it at the time, but like all the all the it. flow rider shit. Yeah. Like all the flow rider, stuff. Will I Am stuff. Yeah. yeah, 
That flow, flow rider was killing it. Yeah, <laughs> it was killing it with the apple bottom jeans. What were you feeling like when you when you were doing the EDM like bookings and stuff like that at the wind? Especially, were, were you into the music or was it? Well, then, so then it, from those first two guys of Aoki and Cascade, it took off really quickly. And then within a year, we had about 12 DJs. And then about a year later, we had 40 DJs. There was one year, remember, with those little characters? It looked like little, like, kind of like uh, animated characters of each DJ. It was like the, you might not remember. Oh, like the Bape? It was the Win marketing campaign. It was the NERD thing, right? Yeah, yeah like the mm-hmm. Bape little thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was like that, exactly. And it was... That year, Wynn had, I think that was 2010, if I'm not mistaken, 10 or 11, the Wynn had Afrojack, Aoki, uh, Cascade, Geta, Calvin Harris, um, Tiesto, like everybody, literally everybody. Like there was, it was 40, 40 resident DJs. Do you know the collective budget? Do you know the collective budget for the year? It was millions and millions of dollars. (laughs) Millions of dollars. Spent on a bunch of thankless European dudes who don't even realize that they're being treated that well or aren't even grateful. I mean, there's a few DJs over all the years that I feel that ever thanked me. Like I said about the, remember I said main source? Uh Same thing. These EDM guys, they never like, wow, thank you so much for taking the time to really, you know, put me in this place, man. Like never, never, ever. And yeah, I'm not, you know, I sound, I'm not bitter. I don't, you know, whatever. It is right. what it is. It's, but I mean, it's an observation. Cool. Yeah, it's an observation. I mean, yeah. Some people were cool. I mean, you know, obviously guys like Diplo are, are very cool people and all that. But, but I mean, he, come, he comes from hip hop. He comes from the hip hop you know side. I mean? yeah, 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 he's more yeah. of like from the hip hop side. And I mean, he's from Philly. So. Yeah, he's yeah. more of like an urban type dude. I mean, he's not. But anyway, what, what, what pissed me off was when, you know, and so you asked, do I like the music? I mean, yes, of course. Now as things start to take off, we have Avicii, we have Calvin, we right. have... Um, Geta, we have you know all those guys and all the and many others, um, and then there was like Knife Party and Zed's Dead and all these other like <laughs> B-list guys that are totally getting over on the moment. Like the, t- the they say a rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're an EDM DJ and Avicii's getting 200k a night. Well, if we give this guy 25K, that sounds like a bargain. Meanwhile, this guy just started DJing like oh, six weeks ago. How did you feel about you know? that, though? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was Meanwhile, like, he's, it's a, because it's the same agent. So the way that game ended up working is that who, the agents took over. So William Morris, um, uh, what's the, what's the, uh, I'm blanking. Is it 4 a.m.? Four, no. Um, what did they call? No. Yeah, that big one, that New York one I'm thinking about. That's old school. New, it's been around for a long time. I'm blanking on the name, but there there was like f- not mood swing, right? No, 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 no. More on the on the house side. Um, anyway, there was they ended up being a handful of agents, like about four or five from different companies, who ended up controlling that whole thing. So, you want Avicii, you're gonna have to take this guy, that kind of thing, and that's why we saw that yeah, that that whole thing happen. But also, like I said before, this thing ended up exploding in a real way. So like there really were thousands of like. 20-somethings from California who wanted to show up or from Arizona or from wherever to want to hear the music. So mm-hmm. there was actually a genuine draw right. that was driving the whole thing. People did want to see Geta when he first came here and Avicii when he first came here and Calvin. So there was a genuine interest from fans. So it wasn't fake. Like, that part of it is real. Mm-hmm. Like, if you if you sell tickets, you're going to get the big bucks. That's how it always is. Right. And that's how it should be, you know? But... 
truth is, yeah, there was a lot of people that got over on the moment and a lot of those guys. And now what we have is kind of like the case of the haves and the have nots, meaning there's a few really big guys still at the top. Right. And then everyone else is kind of sunk down to earth where they should be, <laughs> you know, where they're not getting that. They might be getting decent money. I mean, hey, look, it's still an incredible job a living for them I mean, i'm not saying that they're right but but there's a lot of these guys that kind of fell off the map because they they do really didn't have the draw but uh-huh. in the beginning a lot of guys got over because the, the edm and and someone so let me give an example and you know eric prids eric prids however you want pride pride yeah i always thought it was pride prides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. i think yeah. it's pronounced prids but i mean different people pronounce it pride sometimes he had some great great He's records though. Yeah. like as an artist i'm a fan of his shit he's yeah. a, he, he has some things that like hit you like in the in the heart like like his his sounds and his a very kind of like moving like kind of sound but mm-hmm. so he's huge right he's a legend he comes to vegas i didn't make that particular deal but someone else at the win made the deal uh-huh. he comes in they have all these plans they're going to do this and that and it's going to be eric prids and it's called this and whatever the name of it was and he is a total dud like he doesn't sell tickets he doesn't um, and the night, and the show itself is very slow. It was like zero vocals, all instrumental, more like a festival set versus a club set. Mm-hmm. Now, again, not I don't want to pick on him because he's actually, you know, like I said, I love his music. But right. for whatever reason, sometimes fame in the EDM world did not match success in Vegas. There was a lot of examples of that. Because it was European standards, right? Yes. And the European standards of what EDM was was very different from the U.S. standards of what EDM was. And also a lot of these guys, and not just him, I mean, a lot of them have just one lane, one tempo, one thing that they're good at. And a D, they don't do any of the things that we know what a DJ is supposed to do. Read the room, play the hits, play what's hot, like speak to the people, change it up do things you know Mm -hmm. and they don't do those things because that's not in their tradition but the other thing that sucks about it is that the fans didn't expect it either because it's not in their tradition or understanding so they were the fans weren't even so whereas we used to watch dj premiere and want to see everything he's playing and watch his hands and how he's djing they weren't even thinking about that their idea of a dj is being in the crowd and jumping around and, and enjoying it with the crowd and that whole other experience. It's not about what the DJ is doing technically. So that's why everything changed, you know, like it stopped being about the technical side of DJing and it became about the party. And then there's nothing wrong with that. Like mm-hmm. the DJing is always about the party, but I think you know what I mean. It became yeah. the, the, the standards that we bring to the table as fans of DJing for a long time or as DJs ourselves is totally changed from what the expectations of the crowd totally changed they weren't expecting a technical show they weren't expecting Mm. scratching or speed mixing or anything they were expecting one continuous groove but when you think of that style of djing or that kind of musical experience right i think of one thing and it was when we were doing hip-hop but it was a one there was one event in europe that was huge and it was ibiza right and that's to me was the epitome of that was like I remember everyone in New York, and when I moved to Vegas, that everyone went to Ibiza to like experience that shit because it was that it was a mixture of drugs, love, right, and MDMA kind of bring that emotions out that that feeling of like yo, like 
you're feeling the bass, you're feeling the energy of the people around you. It's all love and it's crazy. You know, someone's massaging my back. Or, like, it's all nuts, right? <laughs> but that was like all house music, right? It was all house. Yeah. It was actually it was house. All right? house, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I think they tried to do a Vegas version of that, right? And they tried to do that with EDM and stuff. But it's hard to do that without actually really incorporating the drugs aspect to me about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I... Then they started just, I think they just started adding like pyro and like weird shit. Like, you know what I mean? To like get, like, to get everyone's attention and still be involved. So mm-hmm. it was like, it was like cryo, confetti. Video. What else do we need to do? Oh, like spark lasers. Lasers. Video. lasers. Yeah. Yo, but like <laughs> bottle presentations came from Europe, right? I could be wrong, but I think that started in Europe and like playing Star Wars when someone's bottle comes out and shit. <laughs> That came from like Europe. The Rocky thing. And I think they were like incorporating all of these things. And that to me was, that was necessary in EDM. And you know, and then even now as they're shifting to hip hop, right? To like a more hip hop scene where everything's, they're still trying to keep these EDM elements with the hip hop music. And I don't think it works. Like, you know, remember they had, I hated those fucking things. It was the. The neon cocks that everyone oh, was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What were those <laughs> shits? Lights, glow sticks. Right? Yeah, glow yeah. Sticks, the glow yeah. cocks. They used to saw that, right? <laughs> yeah, them shits. Yeah. They, it, <laughs> I mean, remember that? And then I remember I would be I would be at some club. And, if, you know, God bless them. They printed my name on these. Like, the amount of work that goes to all this preparation. Yeah, I know. They had all these glow cocks with, like, crooked on it. <laughs> I think and I, then, ha- I have one at home with your name <laughs> on it. <laughs> And then I'm about to get on, and they're throwing it to the crowd, and I'm like, I have to play house. I have to like start with some type of house song mm-hmm. in order to fit this whole vibe, because if I come on on some hip-hop shit, it's just not going to hit. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I don't know. I mean, that to me was the whole EDM era is just like, how do we just keep their attention going because... Well, I you mean, know? I, think, I think there's no question that there was an EDM era here, and I think... What ended up happening, though, is that I, I, my theory is that EDM had its heyday here from like about 2010 to 2014 or so, mm-hmm. something like that. Right about. But around that time, the normal arrangement ended up happening, which is that America is built on black music. Black music is the most popular music in America still to this day from Chuck Berry to today. Black music is the most popular music. And so what I think ended up happening is that the American, the, the actual a taste of the American audience became what it is now, which is they want mostly hip hop. They want a little bit of other stuff, which is all driven by black music, basically, you know, and house is black music, too. But what I mean is that European version of house that was a different type of sound. And by the way, I like some of it. You asked before if I liked it. I do like some of it. You mm-hmm. know, some of it did, for some reason, I liked Avicii. You know, I think Avicii kind of like, you know, I liked his music. He I had liked hits. It. He had, had, he he had, had hits. hits. Yeah. Um, but I remember once I, I was, Dante Ross, you know, who we all, some of us know, <laughs> he's a real hip-hop dead, you know, was on Twitter. And he's like, I don't get this EDM shit or something. And I was, and I remember getting into a conversation on Twitter that involved me tweeting him Avicii songs and then I said after I did it once or twice I was like what the fuck am I doing (laughs) (laughs) tweeting Avicii songs to Dante Ross like what am I trying to accomplish so anyway I remember that moment but at any rate 
Um, what I think ended up happening is that the normal tastes of the American listening audience reverted back to where it should be, where it always is, which is whatever's hot in like the black neighborhoods is going to be hot. That's what it always is. That's what's always worked for music as long as I've known music, you know? And I think that they moved away from just wanting to hear hip hop. Now, what also ended up happening is of some of the American EDM guys, meaning Aoki, Skrillex, and Diplo, and mm -hmm. Dylan Francis, and guys like DJ Snake, started playing an open, basically what we would call an open format set in the context of EDM, whereas AM was open format in the context of hip hop. Right. These guys were playing open format EDM. So when you see Diplo play now, he plays everything. When you see Skrillex play now, he plays everything. Dylan Francis, same thing. So I think the American EDM guys lasted longer in America because... They were able to transition. They understood yeah. that. And Chainsmokers too, by the way, when you go to... They're, they're actually more like real DJs. Like they... I know they do a lot of their songs where the guy sings and all that uh -huh. stuff, but like... But they started off as DJs. They're real DJs. They yeah. actually DJ a mm -hmm. set where they play all, all tempos and all styles. And so to me, the American way, which is you understand that there's different tempos, different styles, you familiarize yourself with many different kinds of music versus the European way, which was, I made this music, you're going to listen to it, and here, here's, it's 128 beats per minute, and right. this is it. You know, is the American way ended up winning in the end, but in the, it took a few years. So there was like three or four years when the Europeans seemed unstoppable, you know, yeah. but then we kind of mm -hmm. like elbowed them back to Europe and, <laughs> you know. Fuck out of here. It's kind of like that, yeah. <clears throat> what was the... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, 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 no. No, no, go, no, no. go ahead. Please, please. All <laughs> <Show> you, brother. <laughs> I had a question. What? Uh, no names here if you don't want to. Uh, we don't care about names or places, but what was the one of the worst, absolute worst, most arrogant asshole, like, DJ you ever, like, what was the worst experience you ever fucking had? <laughs> okay, wow. That's a tough one. Let me see. Let me see. Like, where you kind of wanted, like, God, I, I, if, if I could, I could just... If I could just punch this dude in the face or some, something like some well, I'm not going to say names, but yeah. some D, some very famous DJs are surprisingly cheap, like they don't spend money, mm -hmm. even though they're making a ton of money and they want things for free. Everything, even though they're making more money than anyone else in the whole room, they're they're mad because the eleventh person can't get a free room, even though they already booked ten people in a room. Things like that. Um, you know, I want to mention this, and I say this with love. Because I really love <laughs> Afrojack. Afrojack is a very entertaining person. Mm -hmm. He's very good producer. Who is I, I've seen him produce, and it's amazing to watch. He uses Fruity Loops, and he takes he drags things into that grid on Fruity Loops, and yeah. it's, he, he hits play, and it sounds like this finished thing. It's crazy. Like I've seen him do this. I don't know if he still does, but this was a few years back. But he. Not the worst, because he's, he's still a good-hearted person, right. but he was very high-maintenance, very high-maintenance. Afro-diva, they used to call him. <laughs> Afro-diva. He'd come in with his Louis Vuitton, everything, and he'd, he'd have lavish meals with, you know, there would be like six guys in the room, and they'd have a meal for like 15 people like with like tons of food on the table, and nothing was ever good enough. The music, you know, the levels weren't good. This wasn't good. That wasn't good. So... He was extremely high maintenance, but in the end, he's also a very likable guy because yeah. he's like he's kind of like a rapper in a sense. He's kind of like a Kanye type. Mm -hmm. Like he's like very egotistical, but you end up believing him anyway, you right. know. Um, and he's very and he's also the center of attention because he's such a big guy. So he comes in and everyone looks at him and he's funny and he's smart, 
you know. So actually, I ended up really liking him, but mm -hmm. along the way, there was a lot of a lot of incidents, um, high maintenance stuff. And then, how was was that very different when you were dealing with a hip hop DJ? I mean, yeah, I mean, hip hop DJs are usually more down to earth. Um, you know, you do meet some guys like uh, this is random. This may sound random, but. Um, you know that group Above and Beyond? Yep. Yeah. Um, they're like a trance, very popular trance style. You know, they've been around for a long time. Um, I didn't know much about them. They got booked at the win um, through somebody else. And I knew that they had fans, but I didn't know a lot about their music. I ended up meeting them. They were the opposite of what I just said. They were extremely down to earth, extremely cool, chill, no ego at all. So you never, you never know. And now one of those guys... Jono from Above and Beyond is to this day a, a close friend of mine because he's the opposite of no ego, zero ego, like no entitlement, none of that. So there was a time some of these EDM guys and their crew, the, not Above and Beyond, but other people, some of the names I mentioned who are really big stars, they'd show up with like their crew and they'd be extremely demanding, extremely difficult, you know, and, and it's just, just like, why? Like, you're getting paid to fucking DJ. You're getting paid, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars to play music for two hours, <laughs> to push some buttons and mix a few songs. Like, <laughs> you should be, like, thanking us. Like, you know, and I'm, I'm not, you know, and again, like, I never let it bother me or anything, but I'm just saying, in retrospect, the way some of these guys act, and it's all part of the game. And the weird thing is the clubs, as you guys know, played into it. Mm -hmm. The clubs gave them the rope, you know, to keep doing this. But they started getting pissed off about eventually it. Eventually they got, eventually, well then, what ended up happening is, whereas I said, people like Eric Pritz, they were like a question mark. They didn't, no one knew how well they were going to do until they got here. Right. But then after a couple years, everyone knew how well everyone's doing. So, the, the real value became more clear and that's when we started seeing Calvin and others like rise mm -hmm. to the top and other people fall back because you started seeing who really moves the needle in terms of selling tickets. It's almost know? like a filtration system where you're like <laughs> filtering the better dudes and the, you know whoever makes it makes it. You know? Right, but along the way they pissed money away to these thankless, as I said, European agents. It's not even the DJs. The DJs are just, you know, they're just trying to make a living. You know, I blame more the agents because the agents forced the sound. They took advantage of a moment. Hey, look, business is business. But the clubs fell for it for a while. And then they stopped falling for it. But for a while, the clubs fell for it and gave away too much money. Don't, don't you think it kind of affected after the EDM movement? Don't you think it affected uh, the way these clubs looked at DJs afterwards? Like they, they never wanted to like champion a DJ again after these EDM dudes. Cause I remember when a new club was opening very recently, they said, we're never going to announce who's DJ. We're never going to like put the DJ on well, a that, pedestal. They, again. That lasted for like a, yeah. a, a week. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but yes, they did say that. I mean, that happens sometimes, but the reality is it's still the same. Like you still have to promote a DJ to get, to get people to show up. So yeah. the truth is, yes, they tried sometimes to stop. But I think in the end, it, it, it's it's like once you commit to it, you can't stop because if you advertise one night with a big DJ but don't advertise the other night, no one's going to show up the other night. But so you have to keep the cycle has to continue. Mm -hmm. it but sucks, it, but but it's they're not doing it anymore. They're they're championing uh, acts now, performances more. Yeah. So Some it's it's are. shifted from if we have this budget for these like you said EDM European DJs, why don't we just get the actual rapper here? Why don't we get these guys? It opened the door to like yeah. getting the performances up there. And then because the budget went to all of these performances, the DJ budget kind of went 
it kind of stayed the same a little bit. Do you know what I mean? And it also was like a bad taste because of everything they went through, I think, with certain EDM I would EDM say the DJs. DJ budget almost went down in, uh, in a lot of ways. It, in some ways, it did. It yeah. definitely did. I, I, I used to say, like, I always shock people who don't know about the DJ business when I say, like, there would be a guy like Avicii playing, all right? Let's just say he's getting, like, $300,000, which is probably what he ended up making at his at his peak or even more. A but, night? Yes, Fuck. All right, let's just say, and he's, I quit. He retired, right, or whatever. But uh-huh. anyway, let's. I just use him as an example. Then let's just say, I always said this to people, and it would shock them. I'd be like, "There's a, there's a, there's going to be a guy playing tonight that's going to DJ for about two hours, and he's going to make three hundred thousand dollars." He'd be like, "What? Are you serious?" And I'm like, "Yes." And then there'll be another guy coming on right after him who will be doing the exact same thing and making three hundred dollars. <laughs> And they would be like, stop it. I'd be like, no, this happens every night. Every night, there's one guy doing something. Now, granted, of course, if you, if you sell tickets, you sell tickets. Right. But it's another way to look at it. It's like there's one guy making 0.1% of what the other guy makes. Not even 1%, because that would be 3,000. Okay, 0.1%, a tenth of a percent of what this other guy's making to do the exact job that he's doing and sometimes do it better. Sometimes do it better. Sometimes do it more effectively. And we all know that the real resident, the real secrets to the success of these clubs is guys like you guys and Mighty Mai. Guys who are the real resident DJs who understand everything we're talking about and who show up and ready to play all genres and ready to open up right for this headliner to not play what he's going to play, to not play the same tempo so that the first time when R.L. Grimes shows up and he plays his, some trap shit, that's the first time the crowd has heard trap that night. Right. So you know you're going to set him up properly. Mm-hmm. That is a skill that very few of those guys have at the, that are make, getting the big money. Mm-hmm. And, the, and it's the unsung hero of the resident DJ of Vegas who never get the proper credit for being able to basically play hip-hop one night, play dance music the next night, play reggae, play this, play that play whatever's hot and always keep it varied you know that to me is the unsung heroes of vegas and you, and you mentioned mighty Mai, who was the who was the resident at a lot of those clubs uh at the win yes. during your time there yeah yes and i know i can imagine what he had to go through just switching it all up and just uh, really conform you'll get him on here one day he's he definitely, tells us he yeah, has many definitely. stories of being basically ignored that's how he tells it. He's like, I've been DJing here for like 10 years. And he goes through a whole night and no one speaks to him. No one talks. It's like a weird. I'm this, he says it much funnier than me. Okay, but you'll, you'll hear a story. But basically, the point is that a lot of these jobs, and you guys too, you know, who do it all the time, it goes unsung. Like, it's almost like the local guy is the given. Like, oh, of course crooked and never are going to be there because they do that all the time and right, they right. don't realize that no you're actually the glue that's holding everything together because if it wasn't for if you just left it up to the guest guys the the sound would be all over the place and it wouldn't connect it wouldn't be that right balance that i'm talking about where you know that if it's calvin or someone's going to play all of his big calvin hits you want to open up by playing hip-hop or you want to play something that he's not going to play and these, some of these guys don't even understand that much about DJing to know that, right. you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's funny because it's like we're, we're in a position where we're, we're setting up, like you said, like the, the headliner or sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, the guest DJ that's coming in. Sometimes we'll be setting them up. And it is like you said, like we have to like 
put our ego aside because we got to make them look good. You exactly. know, and then, yeah. and the only reason why I say that is because I've gone out of town and I've had to, I've had to be the headliner and I've had I've been the guest DJ, and yo, like my mood changes when the opener or the guy resident DJ is just really welcoming and it's like, it changes everything and he, and how he sets the room up. I'm listening and I'm like, oh okay, I get it, like. I get what this dude is doing. You know what I mean? I haven't had that experience in a long time where it was a positive experience. As opposed to being <laughs> being burned, right? Yeah. As yeah, opposed yeah. to being does it does you do you find yourself getting burned sometimes when you go out on the road and stuff like that? I or? mean, never could I, talk about that <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I go through that a lot. It happens every not week. even on the road, but I'm out here. Yeah. I'm not burned. gonna say but um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I go through it. I see. Yeah. <laughs> Every uh, uh, this podcast used to start with uh, never grilling somebody. <laughs> nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, cut that out. <laughs> Jamie actually, I mean, Jamie and I, we wanted to talk about this because we always talk about during the EDM era, the hi the hip hop or hi the club DJs who jumped ship and became EDM DJs, and we and some of those guys did it after AM. And they came under the arms of AM sometimes. Some you know? of them, yeah. Some of them did. Uh, I always wondered, you know, like, and then now they're, after the EDM isn't working out so much, now they're coming back. Yeah. They're going back to the side room. Of course. <laughs> and what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. I've never seen DJ shift like that. And, like, to me, it's almost turning back on your childhood. It's turning back on. Biting the hand that fed you. No, it's not. You, well, it's turning back on, like, the shit that Put got you, you where you were. I don't, I don't like, or made you the person that you are. I could be wrong though. You know what I mean? Like for me to turn my back on hip hop music and, 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 and yeah. And like, yeah. I, it, it's like a betrayal of myself. You turn in your turntables for some CDJs. Yeah. Else. I mean, I, you know, for a fact, if AM was fucking alive, he would have, I don't think he would have switched over to CDJs, Fuck you know? no. but you could probably answer that more than I can. You That's know? a good question. I, I mean, I, I know I, people, I often get the question, what would AM be playing if he were still alive? But I, and I know the answer to that question. I don't know whether he'd be using CDJs, but the answer to that question is he'd be playing what he always did. The biggest hits of the day, right. mashed up and mixed in a way that no one else can think of. Exactly. That's what he'd be playing. He'd be playing exactly what he always did. And maybe during 2012, it would have been Swedish House Mafia. Today, it would have been, you know, whatever's hot today, DJ Snake or Chainsmokers or whatever. It would still be that record, but he would be scratching and he'd be, he'd be seeing connections and, and ways to blend it that other people didn't see. You know, and that's that's kind of his style. That's the thing that I always thought about AM is that everyone's like, yo, he's like a mashup DJ. He's like a, he, what is he? And I'm like, no, nah, he is a celebrity DJ. What that, do you mean by that? And I mean that he's the type of dude that would do like Drew Barrymore's like Madonna. birthday party, right? Yeah. Go around and do like Jennifer Lopez's like. Madonna, Madonna. all those people. Yeah. And then I was just like, that's the kind of DJ you want to be because not a lot of DJs. There's no fucking way Calvin Harris is going to do that. Oh, that's true. And there's no way there, there's no way even a young DJ or a young producer can do that. Like Metro Boomin can't do Madonna's birthday. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to be a very seasoned DJ with an extensive cat like so catalog of is music. That, this is open format. Huh? This is open format. This is open format, but it's a category to myself which is a higher standard of anything mm -hmm. where you're doing the like the for example, Cassidy yeah he's not a club dj he's not this he's not that he's a celebrity mm. dj yeah. he's, he's doing obama fucking events you yeah. know yeah. he's djing for oprah winfrey you know 
And that to me is the epitome. It's like I'd rather DJ for a small fucking room with like 500 important, very, very important people and impressionable people and play a bunch of good ass music. Mm hmm. You know what I'm saying? Then have to be. Oh, it's a better know? gig. It's a better gig to do those gig to do yeah. those celebrity gigs. But that's not everyone has access to that. I no. mean, that's yeah. But I think that's what AM was to me at that time, and it was the, I would say <coughs> before, maybe around the master period, that was where we wanted to be, right? Yeah. yeah. Like when you bumped into Dave Chappelle and he's like, "Yo, I want you to do my birthday party or some shit." Yeah. Like you know, like, mm -hmm. you're like, "Yo, dope." Like, yeah, like. That's what we want to do. But the DJs nowadays, because of this EDM era, I don't know if they, they see that. They don't think of it. They don't th think they could do parties like that. But to be conditioned. And they can do it. Yeah, to do like a Puffy party, right? And to, to bounce from like, yo, Puffy wants to hear a little 80s R&B, some 90s hip hop. And then I play some of the new shit. I'll, then I'll go back to some like, you know. Maybe some fun Earth, Wind, and Fire shit. Sure. Some Frankly Beverly and Maze. Some, uh, you know, Stephanie. But whatever the fuck, you just switch it up. Yeah. That is open format. And, I mean, if you want to label it something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's, like you said, it's it's being a DJ. Yeah, being able read to read, room. read the room and understand many kinds of music. And, you know, some of those guys, we used to always laugh. They would set up four CDJs and do nothing with it, okay? I mean, some really big <laughs> names. Just for a good look, right? Really big names. <laughs> Really big name phones. guys like would set up four CDJs. It was in their rider. We must have four CDJs. Meanwhile, they they use maybe one or two of them, and they're and they it's just they don't do any tricks. They don't do any anything. I mean, there's a few exceptions. You know that guy TJR. TJR yeah, yeah, yeah. is a real DJ. He's a real DJ. Mm -hmm. A track, of course, is a real DJ. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's very few from the dance music world who are real DJs. But those dudes start off as hip-hop DJs. Both of those guys were hip-hop DJs. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, TJR is dope. I yeah. like him a lot. Yeah. So what, what do you think about the dudes that kind of flip-flopped or whatever? I mean, I'm, I'm, I know a few people that fit into that category, what you're talking about. I mean, some of the people that we – I mean, to be honest, so, I mean, I'm not necessarily mad at somebody for doing that. I mean, I think – you know, I don't think it's the end of the world if you decide to play this or that. I think it's normal for a DJ. I mean, a real DJ but, plays everything. But he didn't abandon hip-hop. No, not at all. No, no, he didn't. He still does. But there's a lot of these DJs that switched over. Yeah, that jump ship. That jump ship. And now they try, and they, they, they try. I know, they I try know. to jump back. The boat's full. We can't. No more jumping back. The boat is full. I mean, no, I, I know you kind of want me to rag on them, but no, I don't. No, 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 not at all, man. No, no, no. I'm just like, you know, I mean, I just think like. No, I want to know your actual opinion. Honestly, on I feel it, like because you know? I mean, honestly, Mighty Mai had to do something like that. I mean, Mighty Mai never abandoned hip hop either, mm -hmm. but Mighty Mai is definitely a true. OG hip hop guy yeah. who had to show up at the win every night and play dance music right. for the last ten years. So he didn't yeah. abandon hip hop, but he also, but now he plays a lot of hip hop. You know, mm -hmm. so the, in other words, I don't think it's wrong for someone to perform what the people want. If the people want to hear at one twenty eight BPM, then give it to them. It's okay. Now I think you're misunderstanding because I'm actually talking about and DJs, producers, producers, or DJs. No, I'm talking about DJs who said. I have to become an EDM DJ and like don't label me a hip hop DJ anymore. I don't want to ever have turntables. You're gonna put pioneers, CDJs in I there. I see. I know you're talking about. I'm gonna hire okay. a bunch of ghost producers to make me like EDM remixes. I know exactly who you're talking about. And then yeah. undo all of that. And like you said, I actually, I actually don't have anything against it. I just think it's funny when you come back. Yeah. Do you understand what I mean? 
I, I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of like, you, you know, I, like I, there's a lot of vulgar ways for me to explain it. So I can't really, I don't want to throw those analogies out there. But if, if it's, it's almost like, you know, it, I don't like it because you, 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 these people don't know how they affected the industry. And they really did. And they made it harder for DJs. Does that make sense? They made it harder for us to make a living and to like and to perform at our standards of what a, like what we were supposed to do as opposed to when we had AM championing us. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, you know? Mm-hmm. That's why I was wondering your perception on it. Not because I don't take it personal, but I kind of do, but I understand like yeah, we all got to make a buck, you know? It, me it's just like a slight disappointment. Like it, it kind of it, you know, not that I'm sensitive about it, but it like it broke like it broke my heart a little bit. I was just kind of like, "Damn, man, for real!" Like, no, I hear I, you. You know what I mean? I hear you. I mean, it's like not well in this city. If you're working as a DJ in this city, you have to please the crowd. Otherwise, you won't last. You know. Luckily, you guys have found your pocket where you can really be yourself. You know. But not everybody has that luxury. I mean, I know what you mean, but also there's other guys who have said we're going to be EDM guys now, and now the EDM's played out. Now they're trying to jump back into hip hop. Yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. I get yeah. it. You know, it definitely happens. It, it kind of reminds me of like when you had like a hip hop, like a rapper, right? That was your, like your favorite dude. Like, yo, this this is my my fucking dude, and he just kind of sells out. I'm trying to like think of that moment. I kind of want to even bring up like I don't know, shit like some of like the later Big Daddy Kane albums and shit like that. That's you know what example. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about though, right? Like some of these dudes, they just sell the fuck out, and you're like, God damn, man, for real? Yeah, Kane. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, not Kane. I mean, Kane. Wow, yeah. It's know. weird. It's yeah. weird for those old school guys. I know what you mean. You're talking about back then, but yeah. even nowadays it's kind of weird. Like recently, Wu Tang put out a single like a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. actually, they just dropped the album. Yeah, they dropped oh, the they album. Did? Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. It's like things like that happen, and it's like you would think, like, oh my god, Wu Tang album. I should. I already should know every song. I should be listening to it, but. Sometimes it just passes you by, like the way things are now. Yeah. The music, there's so much music and so much information. It's all coming out at the same time that even someone like Wu-Tang might not even move the needle if they drop an album. I, I mean, Trap yeah. Called Quest. That example, too. Yeah. yeah. That's would, crazy. That was not, I like that album, but it was hard to listen to. You know what I mean? It was very grimy. It was aggressive. Yeah, it was a very aggressive. Some of the songs were, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it was hard for me to listen to. It It was almost like a Kendrick. um, Is Uh, it How to Pimp a Butterfly? Yeah, it was like that album. It was it was like draining a little bit. I know what you mean. You know what I mean? It's too much. Yeah, way. It was a happy quest. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't like bugging out quest. You know what I mean? (laughs) But um, yeah, anything. Oh, uh, I just noticed you had the techniques, uh, just like our brother I AM. Know. Yeah, I was going to tell you that. That's my favorite DJ of all time. That's yeah. let's. I love that. He's got the techniques yeah. logo on his uh, wrist. Le- yeah, left wrist. Left you, wrist, just you like gotta AM. I have some questions about some shit with this. Do you, know, you know, the crazy thing is, like, I didn't know who you were. I seen the documentary, and then there was this one video a long time ago. You guys were playing uh, uh, poker. Poker. Yeah. And he said, you ain't got no cheese or some shit like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was, there was, yeah, some footage of me. And, you know, I think Red Foo was at that table. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, it's me, Adam, Red Foo, LV is Adam's manager. And you were there too. I was, we were playing poker and uh, at Adam's house and there was a camera there and they were filming that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it was just like. That's kind of a legendary scene. 
Uh, yeah. I mean, I wish they had showed other parts of it. Like it got. I, I've seen more of the footage. Like, yeah. but whatever it was, I'm happy it made it in the movie. And everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the documentary, you were you were put as a promoter. And I yeah, was just, that was yeah. a weird. I don't know why he called me. He he. I think he. I, I'm actually one of the producers of the of, of the AM movie. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Kevin Scott and myself right. became kind of like the music guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of the footage of him DJing is stuff that I filmed because um, particularly when he was at the Palms. Yeah, there was a lot that I never seen. Before. I was. I I have all that footage. I basically I was that I showed up with. When the, what do they call it? It was the um, that little GoPro. No, no. Yeah. Before GoPros, there was like, camcorder. No, there was like a handheld, <laughs> like small camera. It was a little square. I can't oh, it was think like a little black square. Yeah, I know. I, know, I had. I can't one. think of the name. I had. I I, there was like, there was a certain kind of camera. Wasn't was, it like a flip? Cam? A flip cam. That's yeah, flip what it was. Flip cam. So flip. I had a flip cam. I was one of the first people to get a flip cam, which was the first one of the first things to film in HD. Mm-hmm. And I would show up with that little thing, and almost all its. Every time that Adam played that Palms gig, which was his last gig in Vegas, yeah. for the like, it was like for about six months. I showed up every day, every week, and filmed it because I knew I just wanted to anyway, you know. But it was always did you kind of did you kind of know like no? I, did, I honestly had no idea that he was back on anything or anything like that. I had literally no idea. Most most of his friends had no idea. Mm, that's um, crazy. It is, but um, anyway, so some of that footage ended up in the movie, yeah. and and so some of the, the other scenes too. Now he, they, that documentary was fucking amazing. Yeah, pretty powerful. Yeah, I had to walk out a few times. I was at the theater in LA when they did it at the uh, the Ace Hotel. Oh, yeah. you went to that one? Yeah, yeah that yeah, screening. Yeah, yeah, yeah screening. And uh, <coughs> yeah, it was too much for me to take in at a moment because it was like you know I was bigger than this. So it was like, yeah, he lost mad weight, and so it was a lot of similarities and shit like that. And even the way I DJ, you know, kind of goes after his style, jazzy jazz. So that's that Cali style, man. That's that. Uh, yeah, we always talk about that Cali and East Coast style. We're very like drop it from the one, and, and we're you got like that AM intro. where you like you intro it, and then the last four bars you kind of scratch it out yeah, the yeah, way yeah, AM. Yeah. Oh, that was, the, that was yeah. The, yeah, that was his famous his famous yeah yeah transition. Yeah. So, and then unfortunately, I never got to see him live because by the time I was 21, you know, he was gone. Because I'm from 89, so. Okay. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah, there's, there's a, luckily there's a lot of video online. There's a lot of mixtapes, too. A lot of mix. He has, everything he's ever done is available online. But, um, yeah, he, he, the weird thing about Adam was he was the best live performer of all time when it comes to DJs, but he was not great at making original music or making mixtapes he, he didn't really make mixtapes there's some there's a handful yeah. i'm not saying that there's none but most of those mixes are live tapes yeah. tapes of live mixes so he was the ultimate perfectionist when it came to performing live he was mm-hmm. always on time always there no fuss no muss delivering a great performance but when it came to making songs he would just like he was like a procrastinator it was weird he had a deal with Interscope. Yeah, he had a deal with Interscope. He had a deal with Interscope that was supposed to be a mashup on record. He was supposed to basically take all of his big famous mashups and blends and make us and record like a sixty-minute mix of the ones they could clear because they couldn't clear everything. Right. But Jimmy Iovine himself was like, "We got to finish this album," and Adam did not finish it. And it would, you would think, "Why would it be so hard?" Like this is what he does every night. But he was only programmed for some reason to show up and kill it live. Better than anyone ever, and that's it. That's wow. all you get out of him. He would never want to go to the studio or anything like that, or very rarely. 
crazy. Wow. I, I always think back to the documentary when he was talking about when he was a kid, and it was I think it was the windshield wipers, right? Yeah, the, oh, the when they're on beat. Oh yeah, no, yeah, oh, yeah. it was the windshield wipers. It was the it was the the, the turn alarm, signal, the car alarm. He said he said he said the windshield wipers were in sync with like the the turn the, signal, the turn and signal, and the way yeah. that the car stopped, like. And I think that really explained a lot about his shit, right? Just kind of like really kind of present the way he did music. He really put these things together and yeah. presented it to people. Um, before we end this and wrap this, uh, I got to go back to the poker shit and I got to go back to your college days real quick. Go ahead. I got a question and I've always wondered this. <laughs> okay. And I, I heard a little bit of this, <laughs> but I was probably drunk in the nightclub when you were telling me some shit. So. <laughs> One of my one of my favorite movies was Rounders. Oh yeah, with Matt Damon. Yeah, and um, Ed Norton. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it came about, but that story is almost about you. Okay, um, I was involved in the behind the scenes sort of the origination of Rounders. Okay, okay Rounders uh, was written by a guy named Brian Koppelman and David Levine, two guys, mm -hmm. and. What happened was in New York City in the 90s, I got involved in the poker scene um, playing at a place called the Mayfair Club, which was on 25th between Park and Madison. And it was an underground, semi-legal, gray area poker club, but it was very nice. Like you, once you got in, there was food, there was massages, there was pool table. It was nice, but it was, and, and very high-end people played there from Poker players, famous poker players before they got famous, to real estate, to everything, okay? So that's where I learned how to play poker in the 90s, in like the late 90s in New York. And around that time, I met, I already knew Brian Koppelman, and I brought him, he was, he's a music industry guy. His father's a very famous music industry guy, um, Charles Koppelman, and he was wanting to be a screenwriter. And I brought, and we, and we used to show up, we used to play heads up poker together. And one day I was like, dude, you got to come with me to this place. You're going to love it. It's like, we can really, you get to play poker. And mm -hmm. I was pretty much a beginner then, but you know, so I brought him down and he loved it. And he started playing there a lot. And then about less than a couple months into that time, he goes off and comes back with the script of Rounders. And the character of Matt Damon is kind of a mix of me and him. Okay. The part about me is the, the law school is him. He went to law school. Okay. So the whole thing about him with law school. But in Boston? or uh, He went to, I think he, I can't remember where he went to law school. Because Matt probably. Damon's character was from, was it Boston? Or was he going to school in Boston? He's living in New York and going to, uh, it was set in New York though, right? I think okay. Rogers is set in New York. I think so. Yeah, it was set yeah. in New York, but he was going to school. Up, I don't know. It yeah. might be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it might have been. Um, maybe you're confusing it with Goodwill Hunting. No, but, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I remember uh, around us because I was like, um, I would watch that shit after you talked to me. And I was like, yo, did I always thought you were Matt Damon. I was like, yo, no, this motherfucker it, did all this shit. No, yo. I mean, I was, so, so only, I mean, I'm, when I say based on me, I mean, the part, I brought him into the world and showed him all those characters. So Eddie KGB yeah. is a guy named Eddie See, there was another Eddie. It was, it was Eddie KGB and Eddie FBI or something like that. And then there was this guy, Joel Bagels, became Joey Kanish. Mm. And all these other characters became characters in the movie. So the dynamic that I was, all these, Matt Damon being like a good guy, poker player around all these kind of like weird, shady was you, characters was, your, your... was kind of loosely based on me. But truthfully, it was fiction. So like they took real things and then like ran with it and right. then became and a lot of it i'm not saying those things really happened that was no, all yeah. fictional story but 
you know, I'm actually in the movie um, in one of the scenes when they're playing in Atlantic City. I'm one of the extras playing in one of the tables. Oh, shit. I yeah. never noticed that. Really? Yeah. yeah. I've watched real that movie quick, a lot. Like, real quick. <laughs> really? Like, oh, like one second. Yeah. Holy you shit. Go back and see that. <laughs> not have that you, have you seen that, Jamie? I haven't seen a it. Long time ago, not hey, recently. Check that movie out, and it's gonna you're going to look at Shecky in a different way. Right? <laughs> yo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yo, man. Shaq, it's like wait you, want, honor, you yeah. want to talk to about the college shit i already did oh, that, that was kind of part okay, of it but yeah, yeah. but um shecky thank you so much for being I appreciate here appreciate it bro yeah, thank you thanks appreciate for coming it. through man it's a long so podcast <laughs> i was i hope we didn't uh, you know drain you out too much but yeah it was definitely was a it pleasure. your first podcast ever um i've been on a few other i've been oh. i've been i've been asked you know this is the first one i said yes to in a long time wow. I, I i was asked by combat jack rest in peace oh, wow. um and also peter rosenberg asked uh -huh. me and uh some other guys um in the wow. hip-hop world but i've always said no because honestly like I've, I've told some of my story tonight there's a lot more to tell um right. And I always want to keep it to myself and tell it on my terms, you know, so that's kind of the way I feel. But I knew this one would be about a lot of different things, including DJing and all that. So uh -huh. this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And oh, I'm glad man. I came by. Yo, man, it's been an honor, man. We're really, you know, thank you, man. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank, thank you. Yeah, anytime. Thank you, man. All right, that's a wrap, y'all. Take right. care. Peace.